Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Greetings, comrades. This is another extra episode which I wanted to post here to introduce you to yet another new project of mine that you might find interesting. Well, this is the third one, isn't it? <laughs> and, and I'm working on the fourth one as well. Well, this is, this is getting more and more, da- more and more difficult and dangerous. Now, this project is called People's Democratic Republic of Podcast, PDRP for short, that you can find at pdrp.lv or on iTunes. The show should be approved by now. Uh, No, I won't be posting all the episodes here to not clutter the feed. This is just an introduction to maybe post it for you guys who might be interested in this one. It will be a spin-off of The Eastern Border that will come out once per month with ridiculously long episodes. This one's a bit more than three hours. So what's what's this about? As you know, I'm also a journalist that's deeply involved in politics. And as I come from a small country, I've faced quite a few occasions where people think that governments everywhere operate basically the same, and that their government's the most or the least corrupt of them all. So this project is here to amend this. This is a podcast about the comparison of parliaments in various countries, taking a look at the inner workings of the systems, taking a look at important parties, history of their elections, policy, policy changes, how people vote how everything works. Basically, comparative political science, comparative civics classes, so that each of us who live in one country could get more and more educated and understand why, for example, people in another country make different political decisions. It's kind of interesting, I think, and I hope you do as well. Of course, we will be looking also at the latest news, political interesting events, and controversies surrounding that one country, or that one specific issue that we will take a look at each time. And we embrace controversy here. We support sane, reasonable voting with arguments and take an honest, straight approach to journalism. I hope that you'll enjoy this. Now, to achieve this goal, we will take a look at a country and its political history one at a time. And the, the format is that we will be interviewing people who have ties to this country or who are strongly involved with the said issue, because some episodes will be issue-related. And to get completely crazy already, the first episode is an in-depth look at the internal political scene of Israel from 1948 to our day. It's a detailed, like I said, in-depth look, which you can probably tell from the length of the episode. So, if you're interested in some gonzo journalism and my Eastern European no-holds-barred approach to political journalism, jump right in. 
Eastern border, of course, will continue as usual, but that's a spin-off where I can use my academical training and work experience just a bit better. If you're not interested, well then, feel free to skip this one. And have a great day. Like I said, this is an extra episode. And about this one, our Spies Like Us movie track for our Patreon and PayPal supporters comes out in a few days, and this time we will be looking at this movie together with Daniel, who used to be in Lesser Bonaparte and is a great friend of mine. So, if you're not our Patreon supporter or haven't donated in our PayPal, this is a great time to join in here. Also, I uh, have another interesting news which I'll look at at the next Eastern Border episode, because after the last one, the 18th one, which you might have listened to, I have also been officially blacklisted in Russia. I can't no longer enter that country, and apparently my online activities are being monitored. Hmm. So yeah, that's a small spoiler which will be, which we will consider in the next Eastern Border episode. But yeah, for now, enjoy People's Democratic Republic of Podcast Episode 1, Israel. And don't forget, pdrp.lv. We don't have social media accounts for now, so you can just jump in uh, at, and follow us on Twitter at Eastern under slash border or on our Eastern Border Facebook page. I will put information there and on that show when I will make some social media pages for this one. Goodbye, and happy three hours of listening. Hi, this is Alice. Welcome to the first episode of PDRP, People's Democratic Republic of Podcast. This is our firstborn, and we are still figuring out the format. For our guest today, we had to accept the conditions of the microphone differences, and we experienced some audio difficulties, but the conversation is fascinating. And if by the end you have kept up, you can give yourself a big pat on the back. Each episode will start with the national anthem of the country covered in the content. Enjoy. Greetings, Romans, citizens, everyone else listening to the People's Democratic Republic of Podcast. Let's get this thing done with, then. For starters, why democratic, why republic? Well, because I love the word republic much more than I love the word democracy. Those are two very different words and shouldn't be mixed together freely. For starters, democracy is just a form of how people vote and who governs. It's the power of the people. Republic comes from the Latin res publica and means the common thing more closely. So what is a republic? There are a couple of quotes about this. First off, there's a nice reason why most democratic governments today call themselves republics. Because republic means that you all care about what's going on. And, like I said, a couple of interesting quotes about what is a republic. Gerald Ford has said, Our constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws, not of men. Andrew Jackson, however, stated that our government is founded upon the intelligence of the people. I, for one, do not despair of the republic. 
I have great confidence in the virtue of the great majority of the people, and I cannot fear the result. But when you look back at the past, for example at Marcus Cicero, you can read that he said that in a republic this rule ought to be observed, that the majority should not have the predominant power. That already brings us some confusion, right? Well, the great communist Friedrich Engels stated that the state is nothing but an instrument of oppression of one class by another, no less so in a democratic republic than in a monarchy. It doesn't make any sense now, does it? All of these men are wise and smart. So what is a republic and how does one operate? Well, I have to turn to one of my personal heroes here, Hunter S. Thompson. And he wrote instead that not everybody is comfortable with the idea that politics is a guilty addiction. But it is. They are addicts, and they are guilty, and they do lie and cheat and steal, like all junkies. And when they get in a frenzy, they will sacrifice anything and anybody to feed their cruel and stupid habit. And there is no cure for it. That is addictive thinking, that is politics, especially in presidential campaigns. That is when the addicts seize the high ground. They care about nothing else. They are salmon, and they must spawn. They are addicts. And Hunter Thompson, Thompson was a journalist, so maybe the journalism approach is the correct one. Huh, well, again, more quotes. Joseph Pulitzer wrote, Our republic and its press will rise or fall together. And Pulitzer was an important journalist, as you know already. And famous political theorist Max Weber also stated that not everyone realizes that to write a really good piece of journalism is at least as demanding intellectually as the achievement of any scholar. So, I'm here with this podcast to make some sense to you listeners about the world of politics around the world, about party systems, about how everything works. That is literally a gonzo, crazy, weird undertaking. But back to my personal hero. When the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. So let's get weird about this. Let's dig in, let's be controversial, and let's learn something together about the world, how politics work, who are the politicians, and how everything really is settled. Now, to introduce today's episode, I'll have a quote here. Palestine belongs to the Arabs in the same sense that England belongs to the English or France to the French. It is wrong and inhuman to impose the Jews on the Arabs. Surely it would be crime against humanity to reduce the proud Arabs so that Palestine can be restored to the Jews partly or wholly as their national home. Sounds like a pretty anti-Semitic statement, doesn't it? Of course it does. You know who said it? Mahatma Gandhi. Again, we come back to the controversy of politics. But a very influential Jewish politician, David Ben-Gurion, stated, In Israel, in order to be a realist, you must believe in miracles. So, let's take a moment, let's believe in those miracles, and let's turn our attention to one of the really important and crazy hotspots in this whole hodgepodge that we call politics today, the modern-day Israel. And for that, I have brought you a personal friend of mine, a Jewish expat, Erez Bitten, from the United States right now. Please, introduce yourself, Erez. Hello. I'm Erez. I would just like to start off by saying I don't agree with both of those quotes, but I wouldn't call Mahatma Gandhi's quote uh, anti-Semitic in that particular instance. There have been other instances where he was anti-Semitic. Oh, 
I, I picked those quotes just to just to put put a little controversy straight up in the beginning. So uh, carry on then. <clears throat> Try yeah. To so Mahatma Gandhi's quote is basically saying, you know, the native people of this land own this land and taking it away from them because people used to live there and are now coming back is wrong. That's like, you know, ev every land was at one point belonged to a different nation. You can look at, I'm, I'm sure this happened in Latvia too. You know, Latvians today are not the same exact, you know, genetic descendants that they were two, three thousand years ago, I assume. Well, some are, but back then we were tribal. Latvia, exactly. Latvian nationality as a whole formed around 16th, 17th century. And if there were some tribes who came back and were like, here are the documents, this was our land originally, please clear out. I imagine you, Kristaps, would be the first to say, uh, you can uh, uh, go stick that where the sun don't shine. <laughs> I, I suppose so, yeah. Wow, that's, okay. a, that's, a, that's a brave and weird attitude for a Jewish person. I, I, I should say also, in addition to that, I'm not only Jewish, I'm Israeli. I'm a, not a Jewish expat, I'm an Israeli expat. Oh, what's the not, difference? So, not all Jews are Israeli, in the same sense that not all Hindu persons are Indians. Oh. Jewish is an ethnicity and a religion. It is not necessarily a country of origin or a nationality. It's the same difference that one would call, would say that an Italian who is in the U.S., who is three, four, five, however many generations removed, is not the same as an Italian who just came from Italy. This is an important yeah. notation there. That's why we don't let Jews all over the world vote in Israeli elections. So citizenship is, after all, important, even though it is freely available to Jews all over the world. Exactly. Part of the idea of Zionism, part of this idea of the of the Jewish state, is that you have to be an active participant in order to be considered a part of it. You can't just be off to the side and whatever you want to, you can say, you know, hey, by the way, I want to have an opinion on this too. That makes sense, uh, if you think about it, because it's all about the citizenship. And even and though all the conspiracies on the planet Earth say that Jews run the world, I have learned while learning from Knesset that it's definitely not Israelis who run the whole world because of how it that is, works. It is not Jews or Israelis because if you've ever gotten two Jews in a room together, you will have noticed that they cannot agree on enough things to run the world. <laughs> yeah, those people haven't read Torah commentary, I suppose. Yeah, they, they, they have not read commentary. They've not... Watched a video of Knesset arguments. Well, let's start with what Knesset actually is. Knesset so, is, as far as I know of, and fix me if I'm wrong, that's the unichambral parliament of Israel, which runs the laws, is the legislative council, elects the president, but not the prime minister, as that's as of right now, elected in a direct vote. And also, also kind of uh, sets up the, this thing called the state comptroller. What is a state comptroller, Erez? The state comptroller is simply the person who looks over the government, uh, prime minister's office, makes sure they're doing everything in a orderly, proper manner. There's no, you know, sneaky 
money stuff going on behind the scenes. It's 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 supposed to be a measure against corruption. Okay. More about the um, mechanics of, of Knesset uh, as far beyond as that. Yeah. A quick correction: Israeli prime ministers are not elected by direct election. It's not like the U.S. presidency; they are chosen in the same manner that U.K. prime ministers are. They are the leaders of the party that can form the coalition with it at its head. Yeah, uh, I know, but I read that there were direct elections from for the prime minister. There were. There was a system of direct elections oh. implemented from 1996 to 2001 which was the last direct election oh thank you for for fixing this to me then because i read data and it said that it had changed to this direct election then yes they changed it in 96 because they thought the system would allow for better control okay so this this gets into some of the more uh, complex minutiae that i would have to lead up to but the basic idea is and we'll smaller... get into that minutiae don't worry yeah, we, we definitely is. The basic idea is that direct elections would allow the prime minister more leeway in doing what he does. That system turned out to sort of not work as well as everybody had expected, and it was abandoned. Okay. As far as I know, uh, all the, the, the Knesset is elected in a closed list, proportional election, that means you only get to that means you only get to vote for a party, not for specific candidates. And interestingly, the threshold for a party to be allocated a Knesset seat was only 3.25% last time I checked. That was that was set up in March 11, 2014, which is one of the lowest numbers I've seen over here in Latvia, it's uh, 5%. So this low number means that a lot of parties actually get elected and right now there are what 10 parties and party unions i suppose some parties run as party unions but then separate themselves in the parliament uh, that are in the knesset which means i i if if i get it right sorry for my poor translation uh, knesset was something like the gathering or assembly or something like that yeah pretty much okay so then there are for those 120 seats, there are 10 parties, 3.5% threshold, 3.25% threshold, I'm sorry. And yeah, current prime minister is Benjamin Netanyahu, who won, as far as I know, 30 seats in the latest parliamentary election. His party, Likud, won. So that's as much as I know about the technicalities of how your parliament works. Oh, except the one fact that which I found interesting was that if you get into the cabinet, like you become one of the ministers, then you still keep your place in the Knesset, which is a different thing in Latvia, because if you become a minister, you resign from the parliament here, and then someone else takes your place. So that if you're a minister, you can't, you can't if you're in the cabinet, you can't be at the same time working as a deputy, as an MP in the parliament. Yeah, and that allows for some uh, interesting problems, as as we will yes. probably cover in this. That that was a pretty good. That was a fairly good rundown. The interesting thing to say to to sort of point out is that the Knesset threshold, as you said, was implemented only in 2013. Previous to that, the threshold was even lower, 
and it was put up by the person or by a law that was uh, suggested by the current new minister of defense. And the more or less stated purpose of this threshold was to try and wipe out the Arab parties. So the Israeli Knesset operates much more along ethnocentric lines than would be acceptable in a lot of Western, or I should say Western European parliaments. I don't know exactly how it works in Latvia. But basically... It happens here as well sometimes. But, but yeah, it works along these Arab and Israeli lines. And as far yeah. as I know, along religious lines as well, very seriously. Right. So it's not codified. There's nobody saying you have to, if you're Arab, you have to go to this party, you have to vote for them. But that's how it often turns out. And actually, the reason that the Arabs stick together in you know their own parties is in many ways similar to the reason that the ultra-Orthodox Jews, the Hasidic Jews, uh, stick together and have their own parties uh, because it allows them a lot more leverage as a community. Now, what happened with raising the threshold is a lot of these parties were small, three, four, five-seat parties, and Lieberman wanted to essentially wipe out any sort of influence they had. Uh, specifically, he was aiming for... He, he was aiming for a particular member of Knesset, which had been very problematic in her statements. She, in, uh, in, in the way she acted, according to Lieberman, and her name is Hanin Zuabi. You might have heard of her. She's been in the international press quite a bit. But basically, he put his sights on those parties and he managed to get the uh, threshold raised. But it backfired because what ended up happening is Arab parties united into a joint list. Yeah, it was actually no. called the, the joint list. Yeah, the that, is, that, is, that is what they called their party. A joint list is when multiple parties come together under the umbrella of one list of members. And they will usually decide a certain portion of the members to come from each party. One through five are this, or they'll go, we'll put one this, two this, three this, so there's an equal amount of representation, etc. And that joint list together received 13 seats, which is two more than the Arab parties had together, if you put them together before the threshold was raised. So that attempt by Lieberman actually backfired and made the Arab party's influence bigger. And that's especially important since, and I've checked this, there has never been a situation where a single party gets a majority in Knesset. It has always been a coalition government. Always. Yes. Yes. And 100%. also the elections happen technically uh, once in four years. That also happens very, very rarely. If I remember my history correctly, and it may be that I've made a mistake here, but there has only been one Knesset that has held for the mandated four years, if I remember correctly. And now and now talk about this this whole system running the world now. But they manage a pretty good job with all the terrible intricacies, I, I suppose, because the, the intricacies of Israeli politics are insane when compared to the rest of the world, I think. Yeah, and, and the, the really cool thing, the interesting thing, 
is that for country that really gets a lot of crap in terms of people see only sort of one side to its political system, that being the right wing in many places, there is a lot things that are done that one would consider left wing. Just because of how the parliamentary system works, it allows left-wing parties and left-wing elements from both sides to combine and pass laws, create provisions, do things that would be impossible in, say, the U.S. Congress. Yeah, because the parties just basically have to work together with each other. So let's let's talk about how it got there. Uh, Knesset started with the in 1949, one year after the state of Israel was announced. So, hey, you're the expert here. Talk about the beginnings okay. of it. I'm going to go just a little bit earlier. Okay, sure. Um, to start with, I'm, I'm not sure where your rules are on this, but I will plug Daryl's podcast if anybody's seriously interested in the history. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Daryl's a member of the Dark Myths and our our personal friend, too. Go go listen to Daryl's Daryl Cooper's Martyr Made podcast. He talks about yeah. Zionism, creation of Israel, and everything about this. Pretty much. But I'll just go a, li- a few years early. Basically, in throughout the 30s and 40s in Israel, there was council, if you will, a, a sort of proto-parliament running the affairs of the Jews in Israel. Basically, there, there was an Israel, uh, or I should say at the time it wasn't Israel, it was a Jewish council for the affairs of the Jews in Palestine, in the British mandated Palestine. It went through through various times, but at the time before, right before the formation of the state, it was 37 people strong. The idea behind it was, you know, that we were creating a nation here, and in order to create a nation, you need a governmental system. It ran a lot of infrastructure, it ran in a certain, to a degree, it ran the militias, the Haganah and the Palmach and uh, Etzel. Etzel and Lechi didn't really run because those were sort of outside the consensus mainstream. But it had talks with them. It, it was the quote-unquote civilized body to which you went if you needed affairs of state. Now... This was more or less controlled by the faction that Ben-Gurion ran, the Mapai faction, sort of a, a practical Zionist socialist faction. In 1948, when they announced the state, it was decided that there would be a sort of Passover government, a government that would take things over and decide until elections would be held in 1949 for the first Knesset. And this is pretty much where they decided the structure and how things would happen. And like everything they did, it was symbolic. Yeah, for example, and the first Knesset was based on the old religious council of Israel, right? It was actually sort based of. on the old council or the, the elders council during the Persian period in Israel, because there were a few periods. So this was when the Persians controlled Israel, but they let the Jews be there. They let the Jews come back. They let the Jews build their uh, Jerusalem back. A lot of the traditions were carried over from 
the Zionist Congress, the uh, House of Electors, which was the what the previous council was called. It, it and it also you know took a cue from British parliamentary democracy, parliamentary republic, I guess you would call it. Basic idea. So so that's sort of how the history shakes out. The now the interesting part is that that coalition of parties that Mapai was the first of, controlled yeah. by Ben Gurion and his socialist socialist faction, which is now the Labour Party in Israel, they continued to run the country in various coalitions until 1977. So 1949 to 1977, almost 40 years, you have one party that's in power. There are other parties in the coalition going in and out, but there is one party in, party, in power. 1977, there is a big shift. It's called the Mahapach, the, the, the turnover. The, it's, it's from the same root of the word Mahapecha, which means revolution. So it, it is almost a sort of revolution of sorts. It's, in many ways, it's still decried by people on the left, but it is, in a sense, the moment Israel was tested as a democracy. You know, you this, have a turnover this of was... the old power to to this new opposition Likud, which well, was which was started as a right wing party coalition itself, as I know, from Herut Liberal Party, Free Center, Nationalist, and the Movement of Greater Israel, as the internet kindly tells me. Yes. So. Basically, what does Likud, Likud even mean, by the way? Likud means a bringing together. Oh, yeah, that's that's the meaning of it, and it did bring together a few different at the time a few different streams of thought in the Israeli right and center. Likud was started by, actually, and he doesn't get credit for it. Basically, started by Ariel Sharon who would go on to become Prime Minister of Israel in from 2001 uh, to 2005, when he would suffer a stroke. Yes, and he died in 2006, as I remember. He or didn't they... die. He didn't die in 2006. He only died a few years ago. Oh, well, I thought yeah, he, he was... He, I, uh, that, was, that was when I stopped hearing about him in the news. But yeah, very, well, yeah, very, very was... right wing, very right wing guy, uh, as far as I know of. And the current prime minister is also from from this party, so they're kind of the centric right wing guys, as far as I get it. In the opposition yeah. to this labor, it's interesting. I mean, the the political evolution of Ariel Sharon could, in itself, take up an entire episode of the podcast or any podcast, but he was, uh, and by the way, I just checked, he died in 2014, so he died only oh. two years ago. Okay. He was in a coma from 2006 to 2014. Wow. Yeah. But basically, we see in uh, 1949, the equivalent of the Labour Party, and I will just call them the Labour Party, Mapai is controlling the government, and they continue to do that through a variety of systems. Uh, so also through the Arab-Israeli war, right? 
Right. This where is, where this is, the first thing comes comes part of, which is actual still today, the occupation of West Bank, right? The occupation of West Bank did not happen until 1967. Yeah, but it was a result of the war. No, the Arab-Israeli, the first, the war we call the War of Independence, uh, oh. the Arab, the Palestinians and the Arabs would call it the Nakba, which means the disaster, happens in 1948 to 49. Oh, okay. Over here in these parts of the world, we just call the war in the 60s, the Arab-Israeli war, the one where the oh, Soviets okay. supported so the you're Arabs. Talking, yeah, you're talking about the Six-Day War. Yeah, that one. Okay. So the Six-Day War happens in 67 uh, under, again, Mapai is still governing. It is still the leadership party. And in fact, the Minister of Defense at the time is a fellow by the name of Moshe Dayan. He is one of the mythological uh, figures in Zionism and Israeli history. Along with him is the chief of staff of the IDF at the time, who would go on to also be prime minister, Itzhak Rabin. You've probably heard of the name. Yeah, uh, I have. Those two would go on to essentially lead the Six-Day War. There's lots of things said of Rabin that he didn't really lead it and he broke down. But essentially, uh, the Six-Day War turns the both the entire political and every context of Israel on its head. We become, from a weak state surrounded by enemies, we become by far the strongest state in the region. Uh, this is this is all I'm talking narrative. We were stronger before 67, technically speaking. But we have become, from those who have resisted conquering, we have become the conquerors. Because what happens in 67 is in six days, and I, I cannot stress enough how amazing this is, we destroyed the militaries of all the Arab states that were attacking us. And, and we funded by the Soviet Union at that, with the, all of that equipment. Yep, and we were funded uh, essentially by the Americans, but with equipment that was also French. For example, the planes, which formed the brunt of the Israeli attack and strategy, were French planes, mirages. But in six days, we take over the Sinai, which I believe triples the size of Israel, takes over the Golan Heights, and take over the West Bank. This is huge. Yeah, obviously. The Sinai allows us to say we've won against our largest and most dangerous enemy, that being Egypt, which is the most populous Arab country um, and has the biggest army and was at the time run by the big boy of the area, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Nasser is an interesting person all on its own. He's the only yeah. person ever who's received medals from both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. He had an Iron Cross and a recognition medal from the USSR. He kind of ran through everyone. Pretty much. He he is an interesting character, and we're going to run through a lot of people in here that, uh, you know, you could do a whole series of podcasts just about them. Um, but Gamal Abdel Nasser was also trying out this experiment called Pan-Arab Arabism, and he had set up a republic, an Arab, a united Arab republic with Syria, 
and was trying to also get Jordan to join in. Jordan had signed some treaties that wasn't quite part of the Republic. Uh, but basically, the Six-Day War kills any hope for a proper United Arab Republic. At the same time, it elevates the the egos, if you will, of Israeli citizens everywhere. Look at us. We took over the entire Arab world six days. We wiped them, just completely destroyed them. We take over. The other big thing is obviously the takeover of the West Bank. This is huge. We also take over Gaza. But the biggest prize, uh, not in terms of land, but in terms of prestige, is the West Bank. Because the West Bank includes East Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem important to three different religions and which mm-hmm. Jews have been denied entry to from 1948 to 1967. And they now were, we have they were really back. denied entry into this, this part of, of the world. Yeah, the Jordanian authorities, which were controlling it until 1967, wouldn't let in Israelis or uh, Jews. I'm not quite sure if they wouldn't let in foreign Jews, but they definitely didn't let in Israelis. And in fact... There's a, there used to be a separating wall, which Jews would get up on top of to look at the Western Wall, which is our holy site in the old city in the West Bank, because it is the one remaining, it is the remaining supporting Western Wall of the old Jewish temple, the, the one built by Herod. Okay. Jews used to get up on this wall that separated the Jordanian territory from Israeli territory and just look at it. And there would be Jordanian snipers on the other side that would sort of uh, shoot at them on occasion to make sure they didn't cross over. But basically, we've now got this piece, this really symbolically important piece of land back. We've taken down everybody. We're the big winners. In comes the what we would call state left the peace left okay of israel it had existed very much in the fringes and the margins of the state and now it's going well you know we took over this and it's great we won lovely we can't keep it why but, can't we keep but, it but but why i mean isn't the government by the time like the state itself isn't it left oriented it's left oriented on economic matters okay it is in many ways, a very hawkish government. In just two years after this, after 67, the prime minister would become Golda Meir, the first female prime minister and today only female prime minister of Israel. She is very much uh, represents the... um, she she very much represents the, the more hawkish uh, wing labor wing of of the labor party. Okay. She is she's a complicated figure on her own. She is sort of Polish American Israeli. Uh, she was a kibbutznik. She was she was very many 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 things. Well, what what, can, you, can you explain what's a kibbutznik? To our listeners who might not know of the term even. I do know you. We've spoken about this before, but in yeah. short terms, what's a kibbutznik? Yeah, so so a kibbutznik is 
um, a, a kibbutz is a communal village where, in theory, um, everybody shares everything. Much, it much was, like a kolhos, as far as I get it, right? Yeah, I'm not quite sure who a, what a kolhos is. So if you update it's kind of similar, like kibbutz. Just the uh, kolhos is sort of a short name for for kolektivne hazaistvo, which is the collective household, essentially a community farm where everyone lives and works together. It's actually owned by the state, but it doesn't matter that much. Yeah. Okay. Except maybe so, maybe your your part it wasn't owned by the state part. Yeah. So it wasn't owned by the state. Um, the kibbutzim served a dual purpose. One, they served as places for ideological, usually young men and women, uh, who sort of who believed in Zionism and specifically socialist Zionism. Which remember, this uh, governing coalition of the time were the people who believed in socialist Zionism. Uh, they believed in creating the state through working the land, through uh, cooperation of, of people. Much, much like in the early, early era of uh, Israel, in the very beginning, like in the 1990, sorry, in the 1920s or something, right? Yeah, actually, the first Israeli kibbutz, Ganya, created in 1909, if oh, wow. I recall correctly. Um, and these kibbutzim served a dual purpose as well in terms of where they sat. Uh, they would often be frontier settlements, and they sort of served as a way of cementing Jewish hold on the land. The idea was you can't say this is your land if you don't have anybody there. So they would send them out to these more remote areas and they'd sit there and they'd uh, do their best to cultivate the land, cultivate agricultural practice. Um, and in fact, this is where a lot of sort of Israeli myths like the idea of making the desert bloom was born, was the kibbutzim that went to the Negev, the desert, were tasked with basically agriculture in the desert. You know, it it was sort of insane at the time. But they set up irrigation systems. They invented many irrigation systems. For example, much of modern irrigation stems from Israeli innovation at the time to the modern day. We're still considered some of the world experts in irrigation for agriculture, just because you have to deal with very little water over this desert area and cultivate it. Okay. But that's sort of going off topic here. No, no, it's, it's perfectly Anyways, fine. Yeah. Golda Meir replaces Levi Eshkol. Levi Eshkol was the, was the one who was prime minister during the Six-Day War. He was known sort of as a, as a cautious, very much a politician's politician, but, you know, cautious, careful... Not somebody who re who rushed too much, and he replaced the legendary Ben Gurion, who was the founder of the state, who is still alive at this point, and um, would try in the following year to run, make a run with a separate party, because he, through a bunch of inter-party squabbling, he was essentially forced out of Mapai of his Labour Party. 
That's kind um, of interesting to run out a person like Ben Gurion out out of his own party would be sort of like saying to George Washington, "Hey, yeah, you know what? We we like you, dude, but you know, go go rest in a farm someplace. We don't need you in politics anymore." I guess that, that would be the analogy to draw here. That is essentially what happened. There's a lot more to the nitty gritty, but that is that is pretty much. A lot of what happened, there's a lot of things involved. Uh, Parashat Levon, which was a very nasty business. What was that? Involving involving a plan, a retaliation plan that a previous prime minister felt went too far. It's it's interesting because David Ben-Gurion serves... Yeah, I, I can't pronounce his name normally. I'm so sorry. It's okay. He served... Uh, m- multiple but non-consecutive terms. He serves his first term is from 1948 to 1954. His second term is from 1955 to ni- uh, to 1963. And this is interesting because in the middle he basically went on vacation. For wow. for a year, he went, uh, and for a few months, he decided uh, he he was gonna quit, and he went down to live in his uh, kibbutz in the Negev, on his little farm, and that's where he decided to be. And then he decided like like Dami like Damiklishan of old, just raising his cabbages. Yeah, uh, and then he decided he didn't like to do that. And the way that things were going, so he came back. And the first time around, everybody was like, okay, he's coming back. And he served as Minister of Defense for a little while, which is quite interesting. Imagine George Washington serving under who was previously his number two as their Minister of Defense. Just imagine that president's life. Like he now has to give orders to the person who's the big shot founder of the state, you know? Wow. So it was pretty complicated. He comes back to be prime minister. He essentially says, I don't like things the way things are being run. He also decides that he's going to be both prime minister and minister of defense. And he was like that for much of his time in office. So for his second term, he was both prime minister and minister of defense. Which would, be, which would be quite insane in other other systems, I suppose. It's kind of hard to be prime minister and the minister of something at the same time. Well, consider that in the modern era, right now, BB has been operating as both prime minister and foreign minister. BB, BB is a nickname for Benjamin oh, Netanyahu. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I should, we we I will should continue calling him BB, though, because that's shorter. And, uh... It's shorter, it's easier, and I don't like him. But we'll get to that. It kind of it kind of runs closer to the spirit of the show too, because you can get this high-minded elitist political conversation everywhere. But hey, I'm just an academic and journalist from Latvia, of all places. So yeah. whatever. So basically, in '63, there is sort of a, a big fight within Mapai. Okay. And Ben Gurion gets outvoted, more or less. His number two, this guy named Levi Eshkol, becomes prime minister. And he would be the one that leads Israel in 1967. Now, right now, 
the Labour Party cannot get any more popular. I mean, imagine these guys just wrote in on the most successful war in the history of this nation. You know, that's pretty much where we're at. Yeah, but, they, but, but, but and now we're going to go to the process of their downfall to the election yeah, of 1977. This is their rise. This is their rise. And then comes in Golda Mary. She's been a very successful foreign minister. She's a very uh, intelligent and eloquent person. Uh, I suggest, if you're interested, looking up her speeches in the UN or in the US at various times. This is a person who grew up alternately in Poland, the US, and then went to Israel. Just absolutely amazing to watch her speak. She's very forceful. She comes in as a hawkish personality. Can we can uh, we draw some parallels to parallels to Hillary Clinton here maybe because as far as I know she's actually, also conservative yes. very hawkish. Yes, in in some ways, although Golda Meir would kind of scoff at Hillary's very capitalist ideals, but she was definitely. She, well, I wonder. She was more... I wonder what's the Trump and Bibi relation, though. That but is we'll get also, to that. But we'll get to that. Yeah, that is also an interesting one. Um, basically, though, Golda is she's much more American than her previous counterparts. She's just as forceful Israeli, though. There's there's this idea of the of the natural born Sabra, Sabra being a type of cactus that grows in Israel, um, and Israelis people who were born in Israel are given this nickname of the Sabra because the cactus has a sort of a thick, you know, thorny outer bit, but you eat the inside because it's soft and sweet and juicy. So it's a, you know, we, we like to compare ourselves to this plant. It's it's kind of a fitting analogy, too. Yeah. Seeing as, the, seeing as that lately, you know, a lot of people kind of underestimate the Jewish people, people in general, especially Israel. But what I come to learn is that, you know what, it's not being an Israeli, I think, from an outside perspective here, is not about, you know saying that oh you've suffered through a lot of these tragedies but just taking pride in the fact that hey yeah you've suffered through these tragedies but well man the jews are tough folk like really tough yeah they not only endured they have prospered and they're one of the toughest folks out there as far as i know Mm -hmm. definitely it's it's uh they're, they're very much it's very much the tough people but by the way Golda Meir and her predecessors are not considered Sabras since they were not born in Israel. Oh, okay. Sabras refers to people who were born in Israel. But she very much has the attitude. She's tough. She's willing to do anything. She's going to break you down if she needs to. And this was somebody you did not want to get in her way at all. She would rip right through you. As befits a woman in the 60s and 70s in, you know, a very powerful, very much a male-dominated environment. She has the option, in many ways, of returning. She she now has the question of her hands of, what are we going to do with these new areas that encompass millions of people that were that are not Israeli, they are not Jewish, and they are now under our control? 
what do we do? I don't know. From I, I know I know the ending of all of this, but at that point, some sort of integration program is necessary if you want to keep the land. I think. Right, but the you have to remember Zionism is built on the idea of a Jewish state for the Jewish people, that is a Jewish majority state. Much like Latvia probably wouldn't be Latvia anymore if it was filled with just Russians, yes. or majority Russians, you know, it would be a different sort of state. Yeah, and, Israel... this, and this is where we come to our first real difference, because this is where I draw parallels from my country to Israel more than I draw parallels from my country to the United States. See, in my mind, the United States is built upon this idea of liberty, equality, and pursuit of happiness, right? Yes. Israeli and Latvia are national states in the national sense of, of being so that this state is where, for example, Latvia is where Latvians can prosper and, and you know, live, while Israel is the place where Jews can do the same. Those are nationalistic countries with nationalism built in their constitutions even. Yeah. That's one of the things which Americans find hard to understand why people are opposed to certain immigration programs and all that stuff. But it's kind of interesting because the biggest opposition to immigration right now could be the American right at this moment. Even though um, the United States of America, in my mind, at least, is not a national state in the sense that our countries are. Yeah, it's, it's why my politics regarding the United States immigration here and other things is vastly different than my politics regarding what I think should happen in Europe and Israel. Because most states are national, nationalist, national states built with the idea of a, a central ethnicity, you know? Um, yeah. Not to say that other ethnicities don't get rights or shouldn't have rights, but they are, you know, Britain is there as a British country. France is there as a French country. Latvia is there as a Latvian country. Exactly. The United States and, and it's written has in the constitution. No and it's written in the constitution here as well, which a lot of people don't understand that a lot of these states maybe except some Scandinavian states, which have changed their laws. But a lot of these states over here have written this fact that this is a country for Latvian people in the Constitution. Now, what defines a Latvia, Latvian or what defines an Israeli citizen, that may vary a bit, but the idea is this country for this, for this ethnicity. This country was made for certain ethnic people and for others who want to integrate inside this, this cultural branch. In in the in the times where our countries were set up, I suppose, yeah, because Latvia gained its independence in 1918, and at the same time when Zionist was, Zionism, early Zionism was happening, uh, the idea was that you would allow, of course, immigration to happen, but it was it was all under these strict rules, and it was all under the idea that those people have a place to live already. And it was under this, this fact that you would try to integrate yourself in the society. And that's one of the things which, by the way, the French get a lot of criticism about. Which we'll talk about our French episode at some point. But in France, sure, they have all this multiculturalism. They don't care about your religion. But unlike American multiculturalism, where you're allowed to express your culture and everything, in France, 
you can be whatever ethnicity, but you're French. Mm -hmm. Everyone's everyone's French in France. There is yeah. a there is a quote Daryl loves to pull out from. I think it might actually be Robespierre. No, it's not Robespierre. It's this other uh, revolutionary French, you know, member member of the the, the sort of the revolutionary government. Where I'm paraphrasing here, but basically he said, "You can be uh, French and then Jewish, but you cannot be Jewish and and French. You can be, you know, we we must protect." the Jews and fight for them so long as they are French, we must drive out the Jews from it. The, the, the basic idea is they wanted people who were French first in every single way. Yes, and that's that's how it still runs up to today, uh, according to laws. Of course, they're pushing multiculturalism in, but yeah. the idea that you're French, I mean, uh, one of the ways to get citizenship in that country is to go and join the foreign legion. But once you yeah. finish the foreign legion, you just don't become a French citizen, you become French. See, and in Israel and in Latvia, it works a bit differently. Yeah, Israel is based on the idea of, again, you know, 2,000 years, you have these people, the Jews, that are scattered all over the world. They're beaten back. There's uh, in Eastern Europe, there's pogroms in Western Europe. They're regularly expelled. There's atrocities against them. Even in the Arab world, which most people see as friendly to the Jews, they are held outside of society. They have to spe pay a special tax. And in certain places, there will be atrocities committed against them. Going back to sort of this dilemma of post 67. Now, I will say there were Arabs in Israel before 1967, or I should say there are. These Arabs were integrated into society to an extent. Until 1966, they are still technically under military rule, but they have full rights. They can vote. They can work. They can get elected. And they do. Lab the Labour Party actually runs a lot of what are called what are called satellite parties in uh, the Arab communities. So there were these parties that were essentially the labor party, but for Arabs in these places. There were a few of them. Likud also ran a few. They were not as popular. And then, of course, there were the Arab parties that were completely unconnected to the two. But we'll, we'll sort of get into Arab politics a bit more in a second. Basically, in 1967, you're now taking over these people and you're faced with a choice. Do you make them citizens, same as you have everybody else, and give them the, those rights uh, that everybody else does and possibly destroy the, the sort of the ethnic makeup that allows the Jewish state to be a Jewish state? Well, over or, here we have a similar situation in, uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed. In Latvia, where we had a choice of either giving every Russian person who stays in the state citizenship or give them conditionals and we pick conditionals. I think it's something similar, right? Yeah, I guess. Um, the choice here is either to give them citizenship or leave these territories. Or I guess you could say if you wanted to be sort of a crueler, uh, you know, like a more hardcore person, the other option was also to expel them. 
you know, just straight up say, get the F out of here. You know, this is our land now. Now, the another problem is in the picture, which is the UN, which holds these to be conquered, conquered territories and says, you know, these territories need to be given back, back to the Palestinians, which are at the moment not, uh, you know, they, they don't have a national assembly, they don't have powers of state, and in fact, the West Bank was before this under control of Jordan, and Gaza, which is the other part of this, was under control of Egypt. So, it's a little problematic. And into this steps this new Israeli left, this uh, peace left, which sets up this idea of we want to give these areas back. We want we do not want to be the conquerors. We do not want to do what was done to us. We don't want to, you know, conquer, occupy and oppress a peoples separate than ours. You know, they are not very popular in 67 for obvious reasons. Yeah, because uh, everyone's like, yeah, we just won. Yeah, exactly. We just won. We're the, why, why do you even care? Like, you know, we're the big, we're the big bosses. We're, we're, we, you know, there's absolutely no reason for us to give these lands back. There's no way anybody's ever going to take them back, you know, and the Arabs, they'll just be fine. So instead of giving the Palestinians citizenship or expelling them or giving the lands back, everybody sort of elects to just leave it and not talk about it, which is a little complication. Other side of this coin is you still have three states surrounding Israel or four because Lebanon is in this too, uh, states surrounding Israel which aren't exactly friendly to it and have just recently invaded it. We have land what was, what from... Was their, what was their goal to exterminate Israel in general, the Six Days War? The Six Day War was actually... The goal publicly was to exterminate the Jews and the goal probably was of the war once it got started was to just, uh, you know, take, take Israel back for this sort of pan-Arabic country that Nasser was building on the one hand, the PLO, which had already existed at the time, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, wanted it back for an independent state of Palestine. It's, it's, the goals weren't exactly united. Um, and actually in, <clears throat> in 67, the first aggressor, the person who made the initial attack, was, were not the Arab armies. The first attack was made by Israel on the Egyptian Air Force. And in a few hours, the Israeli Air Force had wiped out the entire Egyptian Air Force. Well, that, that, this, ensures, that ensures aerial supremacy, you know. Yep, which ensured Israeli victory, essentially. What actually went down, and the sort of the casus belli argued by Israel, was the closing of the Straits of Tehran, which, if I remember correctly, was in violation of a treaty... Or, uh, or an agreement signed ending uh, the 1956 conflict, which in itself is a whole sort of proxy war between British and French interests and Soviet Egyptian interests mm-hmm. um, over the, the Suez Canal and stuff. But anyways, the Egyptians break this agreement 
They close the Straits of Tehran. They move tanks up to the Israeli border. You know, their president, Nasser, is talking, you know, we're going to take the Jews. We're going to destroy them all. We're going to let the ones who make it out alive, you know, live in our new state. But there won't be that many anyways. So it'll be okay. Israelis hear this. Ordinary Israelis hear this. And they understandably freak out. The chief of staff at the time, who is uh, Yitzhak Rabin, actually gave a rebuttal to Nasser that is somewhere on the order of, uh, you know, the, the famous Spartan saying of uh, Molon Lab. Yeah. You know, if you, you know, let them come if you can, that sort of thing. It's a little more wordy than that. But basically, he was daring Nasser as a sort of like. But apparently, we know now that there were negotiations uh, under the t- sort of secretly from the Egyptians basically saying, we know we're talking all this crap, but we really don't want war. We, 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 we're just rattling the saber, but we don't want a war right now. We're willing to negotiate. We're willing to talk. It basically comes down to everybody who was anybody in the upper military echelons, both internationally and in Israel, knew Israel would win a conflict at that point. In fact, the American American and Israeli intelligence had put together an estimate that Israel could win in one week, six days. In, well, in a, that's six what happened, days. actually. And that's what happened, was they, they won in six days. The first attack is by Israel here, but it's it's complicated. It's not a clear-cut case of the first aggressor is the aggressor here. Um, it's, a preventive, it's a preventive case here. So yeah, what, what we like to call it is a preemptive strike, you know. But we take all this territory, we're controlling it now. Golda Meir it does not want to give it back. She is very much sitting there going, we won we're not giving it back. There's a famous saying, actually, when the option came up for peace with Egypt in the early 70s, yeah. late 60s, early 70s, where she says there's a very nice resort town in the Sinai called Sham al-Sheikh, which Israel was making lots of money in. It was good trade. It was a good sort of area of control, too, because of where it sits. And Golda Meir famously said, better to have no peace with Sharm al-Sheikh than peace with no Sharm al-Sheikh. So she's basically saying, no, I'm not going to give back any land. I'm not going to talk. There are talks going on. They're not very serious. And then 73 happens. 1973 was a massive screw up by, inter- by Israeli intelligence by Golda Meir's judgment, by the entire security apparatus of Israel. And that's recognize... when also Likud made its first showing in its first elections. Yeah. the Israeli. This is where the Israeli government, the, the Mapai government, really sort of shot itself in the foot. 73, the Arab armies attack again. They attack specifically on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish year. We are taken by surprise. We didn't know it was coming, or specifically, we didn't expect it to come. There was actionable intelligence at the time that said this was coming. It was ignored. Wow. Yeah. A lot of a lot of things are 
being ignored by the governments. And I'm not even talking conspiracy theories here. A lot of warnings are being ignored for some state purposes often. Yeah. Would you basically, say it happened this time as well? I would say the reason this time is basically they were too arrogant. They thought after 67, there's no way they're going to attack us. They've been, you know, thrown back for good or for at least a few more years. They're, they're not going to make the same mistake twice. They're not going to come at us. In 1973, the reserves are all called up immediately, basically, after the surprise attack. As it happens, people are on Yom Kippur getting these uh, orders that they are to come into military service. you got to think, like, people are praying in synagogues and military jeeps are running up and down the streets picking people up, you know, to bring them to military service. Oh, I should mention... I have a sense that this. Israel would do pretty well in a zombie apocalypse scenario as well. <laughs> read, you, you should uh, read the book World War Z. Israel is the last country to go down, I believe, in that. I have listened to the audiobook, and I also recommend this book. It's excellent. It's one of the best audiobooks out there. And uh, frankly, even though it's about zombies, it's not about zombies. It's yeah, about many but, things except zombies, although zombies are a huge part of it. Israel goes to war essentially for not really for the first time but sort of the first time since it's become a state at a severe disadvantage the israeli military is of course a conscript military everybody over 18 serves they serve three years then they are in the reserve for a certain number of years depending on their position but it's still this way everybody serves 18 three years Women, too. Women serve 18 months to two years. But you now have, in 1973, what happens is Israel wins the war. It doesn't actually lose any significant territory, but it loses 3,000 soldiers. To put that in context, that's actually pretty close to the number of people that were lost in the War of Independence when Israel was running militias and not an actual organized military with tanks and planes and all so, that. So we're talking about a major screw-up here. Yeah, this disaster. is huge. This is essentially a military victory pulled from the jaws of defeat, but in the eyes of the public, it is seen as a defeat. 3,000 people in this tiny little country that are no more. There are various songs and stories and stuff that you'll find about this that that sort of highlight this idea of a lost generation again. This is seen almost like a second 1948, except the thing ringing out in the public consciousness is this didn't need to happen. This could have been avoided. Okay. And the re It's kind of kind of crazy. I mean, this is the third war we're talking about already. Yeah. You, you will find that war shapes pretty much most of Israeli politics. Golda Meir, basically, uh, after this, and due to a few other things, you know, she retires. She's, she doesn't exactly retire. She's no longer prime minister, basically. She, she is replaced. She is replaced with the young hotshot of the Labour Party, Yitzhak Rabin. You may remember his name as the person who was chief of staff during the Six-Day War. He steps into the role as prime minister. At the time, he is the youngest prime minister in Israel. He is also the first 
Israeli prime minister to have been born in Israel. So pretty, it's pretty sort important of the, guy then. Yeah, he's it's the dawning of a new age, if you will. But he now has to face the fallout as the representative of the labor government. He now has to face the fallout from this. On top of that, he also has sort of an economic crisis brewing on his hands. So he's not exactly in a good spot. To exacerbate this, what happens in 1977 is a reporter publishes piece showing that his wife has an American bank account with dollars. Now, at the time, this was illegal. The reason this was illegal is because due to the financial crisis, the the inflation that's going on, and the Israel basically was wanted of war, to. Right? Well, it's not only because of the war. The war certainly doesn't help. It's also because it's a young country. It doesn't have a lot of export and stuff. It's sort of printing money as fast as it can to pay off this, frankly, in many ways, huge welfare state. Because remember, this is a country run on socialist ideals in many ways. So, you know, economically, it's not doing the best. It's not the worst. It's still surviving. But it's it's on crutches, as it were. Okay. And this newspaper sort of finds out that the prime minister's wife has an American account where she has dollars, which is illegal at the time. Credit to him, Yitzhak Rabin comes on camera after this thing is aired out and goes, I take full responsibility for this, even though there are a lot of people who still to this day say he didn't know about it before. He says, I take responsibility for this. I am stepping down. I think it's kind of uh, really important that politicians actually should take responsibility for their actions like this. And uh, yeah. this this fact alone makes me kind of respect the guy a lot. In addition to this, a lot of people say the only reason this came to light was because Rabin was in the process of airing out all the corruption that had accumulated over almost 40 years of this one-party rule. Well, it wasn't one-party rule. There were other parties in the government. There were realignments of the government. But this, you know, one party had been at the head of government for almost 40 years. And like any situation where that happens, you have a lot of corruption that's accumulating. And he was in the process of getting that corruption out, trying to to bring it out. And then he gets nailed for it. He steps down. And now we have a new player in our story named Menachem Begin. Menachem Begin is, since the formation of the state, and a little bit before it, the head of essentially the Israeli right-wing bloc. So Menachem Begin is interesting in that he formed what you could call in many ways, he is definitely not a socialist in the same way that labor is, but he's not a full-blown capitalist. He believes the state needs to provide certain things, like... Uh, food, a roof over somebody's head, education, things like that. But these are asides because his state positions are very much a lot more hawkish and a lot more right-wing than the labor government. Menachem Begin is, uh, was in 19, from 1941 uh, till 1948, he was the commander of the Etzel 
which is the right-wing Jewish militia. I should say it's the right-wing, but it's not the most right-wing because there's also the Stern Gang, or otherwise known as Lechi, which I will get into in a second. But basically, and Menachem Begin politically forms the counterpart to Ben-Gurion and to the Labour Party for its entire run. What do you mean he by militia? What do you mean by militia here? Is it something like the Tea Party in the United States? No, no, no. Or what, this what is was it? before the formation of the state. Before the formation of the state of the Israeli state, there were militias run by the Jews. Uh, there was the Haganah and the Palmach, which are essentially part of the same militia. They're just different parts of it. Um, they are the biggest, and they are run by the socialist Zionists. Um, they encompass, at their height, 30,000 people, 30,000 troops. Wow, that's, that's, uh, a lot of, that's a lot of soldiers there. Yeah, they were the main actors um, in many ways. Then um, the split from them in the 30s, uh, there is Etzel, which is the more right wing. And basically, Etzel was formed of the and the idea that we can't take a back seat, we can't uh, sort of be compromising. There is only force, and that is the only way to achieve things. Well, seeing as what the Jews had suffered all along, I really can't blame them for it, because yeah, if you think about it, so it's a natural it's, reaction. It's uh, some sort of. It is a natural reaction. Um, the original precursor to the Etzel is the Beitar movement formed by Zev Jabotinsky. Again, if you want to know about it, oh, heartily yeah. recommend Daryl Cooper's that, podcast. That he loves these guys. That, that movement is especially famous in Riga. We all know about yes, that because, one. Yes, because that is where it was created, where it was originally uh, founded. The Beitar movement was founded in Riga in 1923, I believe. Yeah, one year after our own country was formed, by the way. Our own, not, not country, but uh, when our, our constitution was written formally four years after the formation in 1922. So uh, just formed in 23, which was surprising to me, uh, at the, to say the very least. But yeah, so this... Yeah, so Menachem Begin was yeah. the leader, was the commander of this militia. For, for its run from 1941 onwards. The militia disbanded when the country of Israel was founded, as all the militias did, and was uh, taken into, uh, became a part of the IDF. Menachem Begin becomes a politician. He, well, he was a politician before, but he becomes a member of Knesset, and he becomes the principal opposition to labor. He leads a party called Cherut. Cherut was a right-wing, very much a hawkish party, which basically the Mapai, Mapam people hated, like with a fierce passion. I think In we have to understand that these are secular parties here. They are each these representing are all certain parties. ideologies rather than mm -hmm. the Orthodox religion, as far as I get it. Yes, these are all secular parties. Menachem Begin's party, Cherut, is so hated by Ben-Gurion that when he talks at one point about which parties he will never 
never, ever form a coalition with. He says, Bli Chirut, without Chirut, and Bli Maki, without Maki. Maki was the Israeli Communist Party, which was an Arab-Israeli, egalitarian, you know, all these things that you want to lump together with Communists Party. It was a proper communist, you know, Soviet Union. They loved Stalin. Wow. That was... So, so this Herut, uh, they're kind of the other other end of this. They're the, they're the other end of it in, in Ben-Gurion's eyes. They're not even that capitalists, but they are the other end of this. Ben-Gurion hates them so much. Herut later folds in and becomes Likud. In 1977, it is still led by Menachem Begin, this sort of old soldier, one of one of the few old soldiers left still around at this time uh, in politics. Yitzhak Rabin just stepped down, and to fill his shoes is uh, comes in somebody named Shimon Peres. Shimon Peres is an interesting character on his own. I would actually say Shimon Peres is very comparative to almost a Clintonite. Well, not not quite Clintonite. He is an incredible intra-party operator. Great at internal politics. He knows exactly who to manipulate and how. So he's also he's... kind of responsible for keeping all this new formed Likud together. Because it's formed not just from Herut, but also from these all other parties. No, no. Peres Peres is labor. Peres is oh, okay. the, the new the new leader of labor at this point. He is the guy that takes over for Rabin. Rabin, in his autobiography, calls Peres Khatran uh, Bilti Nila, an inexorable schemer. Wow. So that's that's his opinion of this guy. That's that's not that, a very high compliment as far as I know. But Peres has sat to the right wing of people like Ben Gurion, of people like Golda Meir. He was, in many ways, uh, the number one guy of the party in terms of internal conflicts and stuff. Of which there the are many, is, seeing as a lot of these parties are formed when other parties unite and seeing how Knesset always, always, always runs on a coalition government and you need to have your internal party politics set straight as even the party itself is split up between left-wing and right-wing people. Yes. Shimon Peres has one problem. Well, he has more than one problem, but in this case... In terms of electoral politics, Shimon Peres has one problem, and that is Shimon Peres is not particularly charismatic. People don't like him on the big screen. He can talk nicely, but he doesn't talk particularly well. Uh, he's not somebody who you would choose to rally people before a battle, or uh, he doesn't represent any archetype. For example, Yitzhak Rabin was often called the archetypal Sabra. He is known as he was a very rough man, ready to roll, but, you know, the ideal sort of put country first type of guy. Perez can't be seen like that. He is uh, much more the statesman. He knows how to do the backroom deals. He knows how to do that. In front of a wide crowd, though, he's almost useless. And he's going up against Menachem Begin, leader of this uh, former militia. Um, at a time when the Labour Party is at its weakest, 
Menachem Begin, one skill he does have is he knows how to rile people up. I suggest you well, look yeah, up... He's been he's been running the militia for a while yeah. now. I suggest you look up some of his speeches from uh, the 50s and 60s. Um, he is just amazing. You don't even have to speak Hebrew to see how he gets the crowd going. Now he has one more ace up his sleeve. And this is... This is uh, uh, another little tangent I will go on. I will try to not make it too crazy. But basically, Israel is now, for the first time in a while, becoming uh, not necessarily majority-minority, but there is a significant portion of the population, which is what we would call Mizrahi today. Mizrahi means Eastern. That is, Jews that are not uh, European or I should say uh, Western Eastern European. Because remember, most of the founders of the state of Eastern European, the first Zionists are Eastern European. Yeah, all they, these people. They all come from, from my part of the world where they travel to Israel because they have been kind of contaminated, you could say, with the Marxist ideology, a lot of them. Yeah, so, and now. In the 1950s, Israel brings in a lot of Yemenite Jews, Iraqi Jews, Moroccan Jews, and they feel underappreciated. They feel discriminated against in this very Ashkenazi-dominated culture in many ways. Now, I could talk all day about why they were or weren't discriminated against, but that's their perception. Menachem Begin locks onto this and he stokes this perception by basically telling them, yes, you've been discriminated against. Yes, you've been oppressed. I am here to be your guy, your champion. Um, there is a famous line of him where he talks about the kibbutzim with their pools and their villas. Now, we discussed the kibbutzim. These are communal villages. Uh, they've received support from the state they're, because they are seen as sort of the front line of the state. Yeah, but they're you, not exactly... You have to, to have people there in the front lines, you know, as you said, yeah. in land. So they're, they're definitely not, you know, full of pools and villas, but he creates this sort of perception like the Ashkenazim are lording these socialist enclaves over them. And this, combined with the anger over the war, the previous corruption scandals, the economic crisis, makes uh, brings Likud to power. Now, Likud in this does not win a crushing majority. They're not uh, in any way or form uh, ridiculously powerful, but they do win in a way that is crushing to the Labour Party. They end up 11 seats ahead of the Labour Party, uh, yes. or the so-called alignment, as the internet calls them. Yes, they end up with 43 seats. Uh, the alignment, by the way, is a list formed from the Labour Party and a few other parties. But that is because the Labour Party previously had 51 seats, which is huge in Israeli politics. Consider that in the last... Three elections, four even elections, I think, nobody got more than 30 seats. No one party managed and to, to 30 more is than what Likud got in the latest election. And yes. That's, that, that's how they run the government. They have 
25% of all the voters votes and they are the leading party. Exactly. So while Labour goes down to 32 in this, Likud gets uh, Likud gets 43. Menachem Begin has become prime minister. The entire electoral politics shifts. Right. Because it's it's huge. I mean, I don't know if there's anything like this corresponding in your country's history. I don't know particularly that there's anything like this that corresponds in American history. Uh, I, think, I think it might be like, I don't know, if, if uh, Democrats or Republicans would have ruled for 30 or 50 years and then something shifted around. Exactly. It's huge. Of this, the, the entire runtime of this country, from its birth to now, it's close to 40 years in. This one party is in power. Now it's not. Now it has been overturned. And this is, again, I will mention, a democratic overturning. This isn't a tyrant. This isn't a military coup. This is completely democratic. The people voted. Their voices were heard. There was no uh, military. There was no opposition in that sense. But a lot of people in labor are angry. And in fact, um, you know, people come up to ask what the Labour Party people think. And I can't remember who was the member of Knesset who said this, but somebody asks him what he thinks about the choice of the nation. And this guy basically says, the nation is stupid. You know? Well, that basically instantly means political death of, of those those crazy people running this whole thing. Yeah, well, you'd think so, right? Yeah, But I the Labour Party is still the major opposition to the Likud nowadays. And the Likud still runs things nowadays. I mean, now, on the, unlike... on the, in the latest in the latest election, as far as I know, our good friend Bibi, uh, on the, in the exact election, they made a statement. I'm, I'm quoting here in English. <clears throat> in the latest elections, <clears throat> the right-wing government is in danger. Arab voters are going in drafts to the polls. Left-wing organizations are bringing them on buses. We only have you. Go to the polls, bring your friends and family, vote Likud to close the gap between us and Labour Zionist Union, which is the Labour Party. With your help and God's help, we will form a nationalist government that will protect the state of Israel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I so, think that, that, that the Likud really doesn't like the Labour Party. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the sort of ethnic realignment that happened in 1977 with Mizrahi, Eastern Jews, voting for Likud, holds to this day. Eastern Jews still majority vote Likud. And there are various reasons you can ask people. A lot of it comes down to, my father voted Likud, I'm voting Likud. Menachem Begin is our, you know, is, is you know, seen as this mythic figure in the right wing uh, Partially because of this. Um, now, the Likud run isn't completely uninterrupted. Uh, 1980s, it's a little shaky. Uh, you have 19 in the elections of 1984, especially, you have an economy that's not doing quite that well. Uh, you have uh, the follow up to the Second Lebanon War, which a lot of people see as a huge mistake. We lost a lot of people over there. We're involved now in an entrenched occupation again. Um, and a lot of 
things are not looking good for Likud. Oh, actually, I skipped a portion and I will go back to the portion I skipped. In 1979, this is important, the first ever Israeli peace treaty with another state is signed. That yeah, state is with, with Egypt. Egypt. Yeah. It is signed by Menachem Begin. The hawkish Menachem Begin signs a peace treaty giving away the Sinai to Egypt. Um, he pulls out the Israeli settlements in Egypt from uh, from the Sinai. Well, I guess he had to give something to the state. The, the, the right, but consider the that the Sinai Desert tripled the size of Israel's territory. It forms 90% of the land taken during the Six-Day War. Yeah, but no, no, no. Is, is there anything much of value of the Sinai Desert? There's Sharm el-Sheikh, which, again, um, there's a few towns... Uh, there is the famous, from from a sort of a holy site symbolic perspective, the Sinai Desert is rumored to contain uh, the mountain where uh, where Moses, Mount Sinai, where Moses receives the tablets of stone from God. Uh, you know, there is a lot of 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 history of of symbolic uh, meaning, and there are Israeli settlements there. That were created after 67. These, these kibbutzi, right? Some of them are kibbutzim. Okay. Most of them are moshavim. They're settlements. What, what's moshavim is just a name for a settlement, and kibbutzim is the title. Yeah, pretty for much. This special They're just settlement. regular settlements. Okay. Uh, there's there's a specific meaning to Israeli moshavim. I'm not going to get into it. They're sort of kibbutzim light. Uh, it's 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 sort of like um, kibbutzim. You share everything. In Moshavim, each person gets their own plot of land, and they run that plot of land. Okay, it's, it's a little different. It's a, it's a little different, yeah. I, I can see that. So he gives away all the Sinai for yeah, this peace treaty? Yeah, he gives away the Sinai for peace. In fact, during the peace treaty, uh, there are people who say that he tried to give away the Gaza Strip, too. The Egyptians didn't want it back. Make of that what you will. There are there is a lot of opposition to this in many ways, and it's interesting that labor tries to capitalize in many ways on this opposition. And one of those reasons is that Shimon Peres, who would later come to be known as the dove of the Labor Party, as this man who promotes peace, is in the 60s and 70s, he is a hawk, a downright hawk. He is the Labor Party hawk. And he is the father of Israeli settlements. If you want to blame anybody for settlements in the West Bank, the former settlements in Gaza, and the settlements in the Sinai, look no farther than Shimon Peres, who sponsored them, promoted them, and supported them in the 70s. Well, and was seeing, seeing as I get death threats for the Eastern Border podcast already, yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm not going to give them your email, man, but... Uh... <laughs> Uh, he is he is uh, opposed in this by Yitzhak Rabin, which is very much seen as the dove of the Labour Party. But because Yitzhak Rabin sort of stepped out of the picture just a little while ago. Now, in 1984, all of these things, the Lebanon War, the economic crisis, the sort of sizing down of Israel as a country come to a head. 
and there is an election that comes very, very, very close. Um, in fact, even for Israeli standards, yeah, the alignment uh, list, which includes labor, which you know sort of labor sits at its head, and Shimon Peres is a leader, receives the largest number of votes with 34.9% and 44 seats. And Likud, those 30, 39%, 34.9%, that's a lot for Israel elections. Uh, I have to That, that wasn't that. a lot back yes. then. But it is a lot if it, in modern time, in, in terms for the modern Israeli elections, it is. Yeah, but in comparison, I mean... Uh, Bibi only has... Bibi yeah. doesn't have that much by a large margin. Yeah. But what I meant to say is that people growing up in the States are usually just used to, you know, one party wins. Well, now, this party yeah, wins, exactly. but they lose. Think so that. Likud in these elections gets 31.9% of the vote or 41 seats. Neither party has enough support from other parties or enough uh, of their own uh, seats in order to get uh, a majority, in order to have a coalition. They are stuck at an impasse. Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Shamir, who is the leader of Likud at this point, because Menachem Begin has at this point uh, quit after he he quit after uh, the Lebanon war went I, sideways I up. He, I think he, said he actually he just, just got enough of this. Yeah, he, he basically said, I can't do this anymore. I can't be at the head of a state that does what we did in the in the first Lebanon war. And he quits. He he is done with it. Uh, his successor is Yitzhak Shamir, an even farther right-wing militia leader during uh, the pre-state years, and uh, former head of the Mossad, which is the Israeli version of the CIA, and just an all-around, you know, very much a, 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 a lizardish, a lizard brain type guy. Well, uh, well um, lizard, lizardish, and lizard brain might. Might be okay for my friends who listen, who are sitting on yeah, some, so some creepy, very... creepy internet boards. But when we talk about lizards on this this one, we mean those politicians with a serious addiction to politics. We have a, we have a I I won't call him a friend, can't call him an enemy really. But we have a guy who basically runs uh, for elections to every post that he can get, hoping that'll help his career. You know those guys who can't help but run on things and want to do politics and beyond that Yitzhak Shamir I, I actually use this more in the term of almost the original term Yitzhak Shamir kind of feels slimy you know he's one of those guys where if you met him in a party you'd shake his hand and maybe you'd wash it afterwards wow. he is he's not uh he is not naturally charismatic uh, he's short, I by will, the way. I will introduce, because of you, I will introduce a special bell in my show, which just rings every time I can sense a death threat coming, man. <laughs> um, I mean, I, there are a lot of people who will disagree with me. That is how he comes off to me when, you know, I watch footage of him and I read about him. Yeah, of course. He does not strike me as the most pleasant man. And he is now the leader of Likud. He and Shimon Peres, the leader of Labor, strike a deal. In this deal, they will have a unity government of Likud and labor together. 
and this unity government Which will run on a... Which is essentially if, uh, the, if Stalin and Lenin would make a pact of some sort of, you know, cooperating. Oh, wait, they did. Yeah, no, this is worse. This is like uh, if the Democrats and Republicans were like, all right, for the next four years, we're going to govern together. Oh, and by the way, instead of having a four-year uh, president term, we're going to take two-year turns. So what happens is Yitzhak Shamir and Perez basically agree on we're each going to take two years out of the full four-year term. So during these four-year terms, the uh, person who is not prime minister is the foreign minister. So think of Trump and Clinton agree to a deal. Uh, you know, Clinton is president. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. For the first two years, with Trump being her Secretary of State, and then Trump is uh, president for the next two years with Clinton being his secretary of state. Welcome to Israel, listeners. Welcome to Israel 1984. This is the only government that lasts the full four years. The only yeah, one. Yeah, because, because the both parties in power obviously want to keep it that way because that's the best deal that they can get. Exactly. Now, many people think Shimon Peres made a miscalculation. He took the first two years. Now, the reason you don't do this, Shimon Peres, I will give him a lot of credit, was a quite successful, in many ways, economist, uh, economic prime minister. Um, And he was a successful diplomat overseas. Uh, He is able to rein in the inflation. He is able to sort of hold back a lot of the um, uh, terror and a lot of, you know, the security problems that plague Israel. He is able to make major leaps diplomatically with other countries. And then his term is up and Yitzhak Shamir gets to take all the credit for it. Now you see the problem. Oh, yes, because economic economic issues never, ever take just a year or two to implement. Exactly. Um, so Yitzhak Shamir basically can take the credit for all of the achievements of Perez, while saying that anything bad is on Perez because he ran the first two years. Fast forward to 1988, another set of elections. There is, again, a very, very close uh, uh, distance. In fact, you're looking at Likud picking up 40 seats in 1988 to uh, alignment or labors 39. That is a one seat difference it is 1.1 percent um and then again the israeli elections have a humongous turnover rate i mean a lot of people go and vote in 2015 it was like 74 percent or something 
Compare that's that to that's considered La- a low rate, by the way. But in Latvia, this no wait, it's seventy-two percent to Latvia. I'm sorry, but still, it's it's a lot when compared to other democratic countries. In Latvia, the latest elections uh, turn turnover rate was forty-seven percent of the eligible people voted. Forty-seven percent in Latvia versus seventy-two in Israel versus I don't know what uh, I, I think it was fifty something in the states fifty-seven if yeah. I'm not mistaken. The, the U.S. doesn't have a very high turnout rate for elections. Yeah, but Israel in Israel, which is why I picked it for the first episode, is that. It's truly a republic, and the republic oh, in yeah. the sense you that get, people get do of, care. People definitely care. Basically, Shimon Peres and Itzhak Shamir are now neck and neck once again. They decide it worked so well the last time. Why don't we do it again? Unity government 2.0, let's go. Let's do this. And then this time, Itzhak Shamir takes the first two years. Except Peres doesn't like being number two. He's not a fan of it. Uh, you know, he's sort of worried about what happened last time. So he concocts a scheme. Remember, this is the guy called the inexorable schemer by Yitzhak Rabin. He concocts a scheme uh, to break apart his unity government and take over as sole prime minister. This is in 1990. This, the idea was he made a deal with the ultra-Orthodox parties. The ultra-Orthodox parties generally receive about 10% of the vote overall. Might not sound like much, but it's enough to make them the kingmakers in most elections. And when we're talking about the ultra-Orthodox parties, these are the guys, because all the time we've been talking about secular parties, these are the guys who follow every rule written ever, as far as I get it, and who are like the really ultra-religious people. Like the evangelicals in the States, I presume. Something similar to that, right? Yeah, they are very much so. Um, and they vote more or less as a block. They vote for their parties. But they're um, like, uh, as far as I'm seeing at this time, and I'm looking at the 12-15 elections, there are like four of them in the, in the Knesset. Right no, now. there are right know. now... United Torah Judaism, Shas. Yeah, there's the Jewish Shas. home. The Jewish home. Jewish is, home is not one of them. I don't know. Jewish home sort of is presented to the outside viewer as an Orthodox party, and then it is. It is. is, then there is I'm sorry, sorry. Israel Beteinu. Uh, I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. That's actually a completely separate party. That's a Russian party. Oh really? Israel oh. Beteinu is a party representing the Israeli Russian right wing. Okay, okay. We'll, we will over here. In, in Israel, I should say, not over here because I'm not there right now. Uh, in Israel, the Russians are right wing. I know where you are. They are the left wing. Oh, yeah, it's, it's always weird. That's why I'm doing this show. Okay, we'll get to, we'll get to these, these 20th Knesset elections later, but right now about what happened in 1990. Peres concocts a plan with these ultra-Orthodox parties uh, to have them pull out of the union government with him and pull in to hit a government that he will form. That basically uh, gives a disproportionate power to these parties. Yeah, they have an incredible amount of power, <clears throat> which is why they receive a lot of funding, a lot of uh, concessions on things they want to this day. Um, they actually, the first uh, 
power they received was actually in the 1980s. Before that, the sort of religious party that controls everybody was a role taken over by the religious Zionists, uh, which are different in that they are A, less religious, and B, they are Zionist. That is, the ultra-Orthodox party, one unique distinction is they are not inherently Zionist parties. Yes, because as far as I have learned, a lot of ultra-Orthodox think that the modern day of sec- modern day Israel, which is a secular state, does not represent the Jewish religious values well enough, and mm-hmm. it shouldn't exactly. exist. It the the idea is the Israeli uh, Israel should not exist until the Messiah comes back. Is basically the the theory. Uh, but anyways, Peres takes these parties. He makes a deal with them. He says, "You pull out of the government. You join my government, um, and we'll all be you know sitting together pretty." Uh, then he pulls out of the Likud government, and they don't follow. This is known as the stinking trick uh, that Peres tried to pull. They it fails. It is it leaves Itzhak Shamir in power from 1990 to 1992 again. So basically, Itzhak Shamir gets a full four-year term again. Uh, well, not again. For the first time, he gets a full four-year term as prime minister. And in that 1990- is the only time ever that has happened in Israeli history. Yep, a full, a 100% full four-year term that did not require a governmental realignment. Yes. Um, or uh, rather, there is actually a governmental realignment because in 1990, the Paris pulls out. So it's not exactly, but... Um, That's the closest to the term that we can get when talking about Israeli yeah, politics. Pretty much. In 1992, uh, there is again a feeling of a bad economy. And there is also the matter of the first intifada, which had just happened from... It started in the late 80s uh, into 90s. Um, it, it, uh, you know, it means there have been knifings in Tel Aviv, bombs in Jerusalem, uh, lots of attacks in Gaza and the West Bank. It's not pretty. Into this steps the new leader of labor, which had just taken down his perennial rival, Shimon Peres. Uh, the new leader of labor is once again Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, Oh, where have I heard that name ever? (laughs) Yeah, he comes back, he banks on his reputation as both a dove, you know, everybody's saying we've tried this way of being hawkish, we've tried being fighters, we've tried, and um, Tzhak Rabin is a dove. He is a soldier, so he can, you can count on his security credentials, but he is very much, uh, you know, uh, uh, swords into plowshares sort of guy. Beyond that, he promises a new vision of economics. You know, he harkens back to this ideal of the old state where things might have been tough, but we were all in it together. And, you know, um, go watch some of his campaign ads from 1992. They are the model of how to do campaigning. One ad is this optimistic Israel where everybody's friends together. Um, Another ad is is this, you know, Tel Aviv under threat, under a government that promised no threats, you know, from the former government. It is simply a lesson in how to run a campaign. Yitzhak Rabin wins in 92. 
Well, man, he doesn't the Jews win control the... the media even in Israel. <laughs> yes, they do. Itzhak Rabin wins with one of the biggest uh, uh, victories in a while. It is known as the second Mahapach, the second sort of political revolution, because that is what is expected. He receives 44 seats to uh, Shamir's 32 seats. Shamir is incidentally uh, basically gone as leader of Likud a year after this to be replaced by current prime minister and, uh, you know, one of my least favorite people, Benjamin Netanyahu. It is from 1992 to 1993, late 93, it's normal. Uh, you know, he is like previous governments, he is making overtures for peace. He's trying to make the case for peace, both to the Israeli public and to the Arabs. He is finally finding a partner across the aisle in uh, former terrorist master turned head of, uh, you know, Palestinian diplomacy, Yasser Arafat. And that is really uh, interesting because one of the more technical details from the Knesset is that in my country, at least, if you have been criminally punished and you're crime hasn't been purged there is an actual like form of how to jurisdictionally purge your criminal punishments from the history uh, then you can't be elected like if you if you've sat in prison and that hasn't been officially purged from your papers right, you right. can't be elected so in, in israel, israel that is it's, not a law in israel that is not allowed but yasser arafat is not in the israeli knesset I, oh, he is yeah, a but, palestinian but there's no there's an official rule in israel stating that you just have to wait seven years after the end seven of years. punishment yes. yeah and and we will come to that because uh there is a very famous israeli political figure who is also a current member of knesset who has sat several years in jail itzhak rabin uh, is on his road to make peace. In 93, he signs the first Oslo Accords, uh, which are sort of an interim agreement to allow uh, with with the Palestinian. In 1994, he signs a peace treaty with Jordan, the second ever peace treaty in Israeli history. Uh, he is in talks to make peace with the Syrians over the Golan Heights. And his government is actually close to collapse. Uh, the ultra-religious parties uh, basically threaten to leave it at a certain point. The interesting thing is um, that what he essentially does is he threatens if they leave, the Arab parties will come into government. So the Arab parties, because of these peace talks, for the first time in Israeli history, become involved in the affairs of government by being outside supporters of the government. Yeah, and this is a brand new thing, because previously we were talking about strictly Jewish parties, but... Uh, yeah, the, so I, I, not, if I'm not mistaken, there are 10 million people in Israel? And how many right now, are there are eight, right now there are eight, eight. Uh, about 1.5 million are Arabs. Okay. Um, well, 1.5 million citizen Arab citizens. Um, we'll get to that. Um, so it's Itzhak Rabin uh, is making progress for peace. In 1995, because of this progress, he is shot. He is assassinated by Galamir, and he takes three bullets in the back. 
and yeah, uh, he's gone. Um, and basically, uh, the person who takes over for him was the person who was leading the Oslo Accords in many ways alongside him, his foreign minister, his perennial rival, Shimon Peres. It seems, Shimon, like nothing, it seems like nothing really changed in this period of time. The people were just messing around with each other. It does. Shimon Peres now also has to go up against Bibi. Bibi is a new, young, hotshot from Likud. Uh, if elected, he would be the youngest prime minister in Israeli history. Uh, he is very much an American in many ways. Uh, he has American roots. You know, he lived in the U.S. for a while. Um, he speaks English without an accent. Uh, he is uh, a very successful diplomat on behalf of Israel. Uh, he has spoken at the UN. He has spoken. Uh, he was the uh, Israeli deputy foreign minister. He's seen very much as this youthful new energy for Likud. And he has charisma, which is one thing that you might remember Shimon Peres lacks. Yes. Shimon Peres now has to go up against him in Israel's first ever personal elections. That is, he is not running as the head of the Labour Party. He is running as Shimon Peres versus Benjamin Netanyahu, and whoever receives the majority wins. Shimon Peres makes a bunch of mistakes. In, One in, of them, in addition to him being a slimy lizard man. Yeah. In addition to him being a, a lizard and a, a very much a, a, a uncharismatic fellow, Shimon Peres decides he wants to do the election on his own terms and not as the one, as the person who is, you know, the continuation of Rabin, which would be the politically wise move since it gives him the credit of, you know, our guy got assassinated. How can you even vote for the other people? Um, but instead, he decides he's going to push the elections a bit, but not that far, um, and run on his own on his own uh, merits. This turns out to be a huge mistake. One of the reasons this turns out to be a huge mistake was during the the Oslo agreements that are still ongoing, the negotiations with the Israeli government. There are a bunch more terrorist attacks. In fact, there is one terrorist attack that terrorist attack that comes. Uh, a few weeks before the elections. It's incredibly unlucky. Shimon Peres uh, goes up in the elections of 96 against, uh, against Likud, against um, Benjamin Netanyahu, and he loses by exactly one percentage point. Benjamin Netanyahu receives... 50.5%, Shimon Peres receives 49.5% of the vote. But that just elects the prime minister. It has no nothing yes. to do with the, the, the parliamentary elections. Remember that? One, yes, this, this is, is the prime minister. But the prime minister is the leader of government because that's the way this new system is run. So they have to Shimon make this coalition Peres government. Actually, wait, wait. So they have to make this coalition government from the parties that are elected in a separate election to the government... By their own percentages. There, there you go. And the interesting thing is, 
Likud, at this point, it doesn't even have a majority in Knesset. It doesn't, not that it doesn't have a majority. Um, it doesn't have plurality in in the 14th, this is the, now the 14th Knesset, um, because Labor Party has 34 seats in this Knesset, Likud has 32. They're not even the largest party. But because their guy won the personal elections, they get to form the government. Well, now, if you thought Israeli government couldn't get any more fun. Yeah. Beyond that, the interesting thing is in this election, it was said that voters went to sleep with Peres as prime minister because during the night of the election, as results were being reported, all the news channels called it for Peres. They went to sleep with Peres as prime minister. They woke up with Bibi Netanyahu as prime minister. Well, when have, when have media ever gotten the results of the elections wrong? Well, but you got to think of this was when results were still coming in. That was a sarcastic joke, really. Yeah, I know. This was an incredibly uh, strange. Um, Was it it because of how the districts were counted or something? No, it's just uh, the timing of results coming in. Because the results were still going in overnight. So Bibi ends up being the prime minister of Israel in these elections, which his yes. party lost, but he won personally due to his charisma. Yes, and this is after the controversial but still popular prime minister Yitzhak Rabin has been assassinated. For those of, which, of you who might be keeping up with our analogies, this is if uh, akin to if LBJ had lost the election right after JFK got assassinated. And I don't mean if LBJ had lost the election to Barry Goldwater in 1964. I mean if he had lost the election in 1963 right after – like a few months. It's not even a full year. A few months after JFK gets assassinated. And that's what's really interesting about politics, about how can you – feel that much yeah Perez is there is a reason Perez is known as the perennial loser he was he was labor party's uh uh leader for 15 years and never once won in any sort of decisive way he was never just prime minister the only time he was prime minister was either um, because of the unigo- unity government or after uh, Rabin was assassinated when you know he took over as prime minister interim. Um, okay, so moving on from here, we now have Bibi. He's a new political player in the ring, um, very much so. He's the new young Likud hotshot. Uh, he promised still, still not as radical as he is today. Still no, kind of definitely not. Guy. He ran. He ran on a slogan of a secure peace. That was his slogan: peace, but a secure peace. He comes up against a few obstacles. One of which is he can't get his secure peace. He very much, and this is something we found out later, sabotages his own 
uh, peace negotiation efforts in many ways. He sabotaged the Hebron Accords by asking things he knew he wouldn't get. Was was this, um, was this the period where he said that, uh, and I'll quote here, if the Arabs put down their weapons today, there would be no more violence. If the Jews put down their weapons today, there would be no more Israel, or does this come later? This comes later. Okay. Um, but this is still very much his ideology. Um he sort of plays it like, look, guys, I'm trying to make peace, but they don't want to listen. That's how he's playing it. Unfortunately, people are still kind of upset over Rabin's death, the death of the of the uh, peace accords. And Bibi's not really having tons of success economically. So that's sort of a thorn in his side, too. Enter a new player on the uh, Labour Party scene. Mr. Ehud Barak. Ehud Barak is the former chief of staff of the Israeli military, a former commander of the Israeli of Israel's elite Sayeret Matkal, sort of our Green Berets, Navy SEALs, what have you, the very much the elite unit in which Benjamin Netanyahu also served under actually Ehud Barak. Ehud Barak was his commander at the time. Um, Ehud Barak uh, is many things. Uh, he's not charismatic. He's not personality, but he has a record to back up. Uh, he's, you know, like I said, he's the former chief of staff. He's very popular because of that. He is also Yitzhak Rabin's hand-picked prodigy. Yitzhak Rabin pulled him out of the army uh, after he was chief of staff to be a part, you know, he called on him to be a part of the Labour Party. Uh, he calls on him to sort of become part of this political family. And he's very much seen as a continuation of Rabin's legacy in a way that Paris really couldn't do. And this is why in 1999, uh, again, Bibi didn't last a full term, mind you. Bibi lasted from 96 to 99, three years or not even three years instead of the four years he's supposed to so because his government split. Yeah. His government split once again due to intergovernmental problems and a few other things because that's just what Israeli governments do. In 1999, Ehud Barak uh, runs against him to become prime minister and wins by an incredible majority in the personal elections. I mean, the Knesset elections were kind of close. The personal elections, Ehud Barak wins by 56.1% to Bibi's 43.9%. He crushes him. He has to govern. Ehud Barak starts his term by saying, this is a new era, a new era in the Middle East. Uh, I'm paraphrasing him. But basically, he's sort of trying to bring this back as this, you know, we labor is once again in control. We're going to have peace. We're going to have a better economy. And he fails all that. His negotiations with Arafat are a failure. To add to his consternation in 2000, less than a year after he is prime minister, Ariel Sharon of the Likud starts an intifada, basically. He goes up to the Temple Mount, uh, also known as the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the holiest place for literally both Jews and Muslims. 
and which until now has been more or less exclusively a Muslim spot. Muslims are allowed up there only because they sort of need their own space, and that's incredibly controversial. And if you want to count death threats, I suggest <laughs> you start counting how many of them go up just about now. Wow. Um, basically, the Al-Aqsa Mosque or, or the, is built around where Muslims believe uh, Muhammad went up to heaven on his steed. Because, you know, Muslims believe Muhammad never died or rather he died later, but he went up to heaven from this place. For Jews, this is the site of the temple. Um, but of course, there's a mosque on it. We're not going to destroy the mosque. We're going to leave them their holy place. Ahud, uh, Ariel Sharon goes up on this holy Muslim site and essentially makes a very – and he does this very publicly, very declaratively, like we are here, we are aggressive – and he does this as an opposition move. And this kickstarts the second intifada, which I personally remember because I was a child during this intifada. It wasn't pretty. It's known as the Al-Aqsa Intifada because of this. Wow. Yeah. This causes a lot of security mayhem. This also sort of brings forward the already breakdown. There was already a breakdown in the peace talks by now. Peace talks were going nowhere. It turns out Ehud Barak doesn't really know how to manage a government. His count, his uh, opponent, Ariel Sharon, who is the leader of the Likud party at this point, definitely knows how to create provocative actions uh, yeah, and do, actions. do crazy things. And then let's call them in... slightly provocative and maybe just maybe out of line. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so Ariel Sharon, uh, uh, sorry, Ehud Barak's government because of many factors, one of them being his basically opposition to letting the ultra-Orthodox have their say, falls apart in 2001, um, about a year and a few months into its rule. So this government lasted from 6th of July, 1999 to 7th of March, 2001. And that was which Knesset? So this is the 15th Knesset and the 28th government. Just okay. to give you a little bit of a, yeah. And currently um, we're the 20th Knesset. Right now we are at the 34th Knesset. This is the 28th Knesset. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you're right. We're at the tw uh, the, the 20th Knesset, but yeah. the 34th government nowadays. Yeah. So this is this is the 15th Knesset. The, the, and Ariel Sharon goes up in personal elections against Ahud Barak and wins. Um, because because apparently he climbed he climbed to the mosque. It, yeah, uh, and he wins by an even more crushing majority than Ehud Barak won last time. He wins by sixty-two point thirty-nine percent to Ehud Barak's thirty-seven point sixty-one percent. From this, we can see that party polarization is just not that much of an issue in Israel because of all of these parties. Yeah. Uh, to party polarization isn't political map polarization, or as I would call it, block polarization is, especially nowadays. And I'll get to that. Now, Ariel Sharon is a very unique figure. He started his way in the Haganah, which, as you may recall, was the militia of the, the sort of socialist Labour Party left. And yeah, that is the one, the one was, which was pre-state pre of Israel. Pre-state. He... Uh, he is from a kibbutz. He is very much born in the political tradition of 
the labor, the early labor party, but he is born in the tradition of the labor party hawks. And he goes on to split from the labor party in the 70s and form his own uh, liberal party, which would later become Likud together when combined with Cherut. He was possibly the most vocal opposition to every single leader of Likud until he became the leader of Likud. This man does loud like nobody else. Uh, look up his fight with Shamir in the 1980 Likud convention. He is yelling off the podium. He is big, too, both physically and in terms of being this mythic general figure. Uh, he, is, he makes his political fortune in 1973 by essentially disobeying orders and taking his troops. Uh, he is uh, the, the, the person in charge. He is at this point um, the colonel in charge of a, a brigade, the paratroopers brigade at the time, and he takes them against orders across the Suez Canal um, in 1973, a move which some said win the war, a lot of people said endangered more people. It's wow. huge. He so, is... So he's, he's a huge personality all around. He's just yeah. this, this He's also guy. physically huge. Ariel Sharon is fat. Like, there's there's no way around it. He is... death that count. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't say that as a, as a bad thing, but he was a physically large person um no i mean because of the fat shaming oh okay um please send your death threats to uh 33 griswold i'm just kidding um i was gonna give somebody address but i really shouldn't do that uh let's let's not mention the one that should not be named in this podcast yeah yeah um anyways Ariel Sharon uh, is, yeah, he's this larger-than-life figure, and he very much cracks down on terror in the only way he's ever advocated in the beginning, military power. Oh. He brings, in he, 2000... He, he intends to free the shit out of those people. Yeah. In 2002, he uh, brings an operation throughout the West Bank that quite literally blasts through the houses in order to capture key members of the PLO leadership. Remember, the PLO at this time is essentially acting both as a terrorist organization and as the governing organization of the Palestinian Authority under the Oslo Accords. He captures several leaders in the PLO, in the Hamas. Uh, he, in many ways, strikes the fear of God into them. Wow. At the same time, he is starting to pivot uh, politically. In 2003, there are Knesset elections again. Likud wins. And these are the ones where, prime, where, where they decided that, you know what, we really shouldn't elect prime minister in a direct vote because yeah, it this fucks is, things up. Yeah, they go back to, they go back to just Knesset elections um, and... They, yeah, so basically they go back to Knesset elections and, um, and Likud wins. 
handily. Um, in 2003, Labour went down to its lowest point in its history with 19 seats to Likud's 38. Ariel Sharon continues to be this major figure, but then in 2004-2005, with pressure from the Bush administration, uh, mounting uh, second intifada in 2003 and 2004, he's under a lot of pressure. And he kind of ran out of options. You know, he tried the let's go all in by force. Let's bring our full military brunt against these people. And it worked to an extent, but it didn't work in Gaza. So he pioneers in 2005 the Gaza pullout, the famous Gaza pullout. It's a unilateral move. That is no agreement on the table, no talks. We are just going to take everybody out of there. Army, uh, settlers, everybody's going to just coming out. And in 2005, that's more or less what he does. He faces huge opposition on the right because of this. Um, and he is forced to create his own party, split from the Likud, which I'll remind you, he is one of the founders of, and create Kadima. Kadima means forward. Kadima is almost in its own a coalition party. Um, by the way, the vote to pull out was done before Kadima was created, which means that uh, Kadima includes people, which, which means the people in the Likud, almost all of them voted yes to the pullout before they objected to it and were then like, no, we can't be in a government that does. It sounds like a dreadful political move, a way how to set up Sharon. Yeah. So Kadima actually captures a lot of public consensus. It is the closest you can come in Israel to a proper centrist governing party. It pulls in people both from the Labour Party, from the Likud, from various other uh, smaller centrist parties. It's very much uh, uh, a consensus centrist party. Unfortunately, in the 4th of January 2006, Ariel Sharon suffers a stroke because of his <clears throat> poor health and prodigious size. Um, he suffers a stroke, goes into a coma, obviously can't be prime minister anymore. Into his shoes steps uh, almost political nobody, number a person who was number 25 on the Likud list and basically only got in on the Kadima list where he was because of his... Uh, you know, because because of his ability to be a Likudnik, an old school Likudnik, Ehud Olmert. Ehud Olmert only claim to fame was former being the former uh, mayor of Jerusalem, which is produced enough. But that's pretty much it. He came in at number twenty five on the Likud list in wow. the government in the elections. Well, so, we, we we have a we have a we, we have an MP. Okay, who was the last one on his list, but unlike Israel, in Latvia you can give pluses and minuses to the individual individual MPs, and he gathered so many votes for him uh, in the forms of pluses that he actually became the top dog in that party. 
So Interesting. just coming up. But also, we, we also have these, this uh, closed ballot election, but you can't rearrange people, but you can give them pluses and minuses. So you kind of can. So anyways, Ehud Olmert becomes prime minister. He gets into a lot of different fights. Let me guess, two years? In 2000, no, he, he lasts from 2006 to 2009. Uh, he wow. lasts over three years, you know, he, he lasts pretty good for, uh, for an Israeli prime minister. And the only reason he has to step down, well, he was both popular and unpopular. His popularity is very closely tied to him being the continuer of Ariel Sharon's legacy. He knew to play things like Paris couldn't in many ways. And Ariel Sharon wasn't even assassinated. He just went into a coma. Um, because of his health, not because someone shot him. Although people were threatening to shoot him at the time. So, you know. Um, but Ehud Olmert goes into a second Lebanon, Lebanon war in 2006, which is considered an abject failure by pretty much all its historians. Uh, but then in 2000, and then in 2008, he begins talks with the Palestinians that look promising. The problem is, right around the same time he starts these talks, there are relevations that come about about his corruption during a time as mayor of Jerusalem. Basically, he accepted money uh, in order to give contractors uh, kickbacks and power, like uh, the contracts to build certain projects in. I sense that uh, he's from our end of the, the planet. City. Yeah, he was kind of corrupt. Um, little side note on my impartiality regarding Olmert. Uh, my grandfather was Olmert's wife's boss when she worked as a social worker. Um, he was their boss, and he actually helped them get their first apartment back when Olmert was a nobody's nobody. Um, yeah, just little side note. There's a there's a photo of my sister on his shoulders at the um, uh, Israeli Independence Day celebrations back when he was mayor of Jerusalem. Beyond that, though, so, you know, I'm one of the elite, clearly. Um, You're just reinforcing the stereotype, Erez. <laughs> yeah. In, in, did you know that in Israel, Jews control the government? Oh, no. Who would have thought of that? <laughs> um, so... In 2009, he is forced to step down uh, because of these corruption allegations. And three months later, there is, uh, you know, an election. Um, who is in these elections but our favorite person, current prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu? Bibi is going up against Sipi Livni, which was both Ehud Olmert's and Ariel Sharon's right-hand person in Kadima. She was the foreign minister. She is a former Mossad agent, uh, the daughter to two high-ranking people in the Etzel, the right-wing militia. She lacks some charisma, and essentially Ehud Olmert's record pulls her down, and she wins. She actually wins more seats than Bibi, but is not able to form a coalition. Uh, she wins 28 seats to Likud's 27, 
with yeah, Labour this, Party. This, this one C difference being crazy, and I'm looking at the percentage points right now. Uh, the internet says to me that Kadima won with 22.47%, and BB got, with his Likud, got 21.61%. That's less yeah. than a percentage point. But Tsipi Livni never becomes prime minister because she can't form a coalition. And so the uh, president who sees that, whose power it is to essentially award the uh, leader of a party with the power of building a coalition, uh, says Livni is not capable. You know, I've seen uh, what the part, the other party leaders have told me. I'm not seeing that she is capable of forming a coalition. I'm giving Netanyahu the power to build a coalition. Netanyahu becomes prime minister in 2009. He has been prime minister from 2009 to the modern day. And that pretty much brings us to today. Uh, yeah, I could but, go that, over that, but more. that doesn't mean the government hasn't had its own fair share of issues or that no. the government has been stable at all. No, it has not. Bibi's first government in this uh, run lasted from 2009 to 2013. Uh, it was brought down by a number of things, uh, including problems within Shas, the ultra-Orthodox party, and very much so problems within the Labour Party. Well, there which, are still problems with Shas right now. Yeah. So this is interesting because we're going to go back to the Labour Party. From 2003, essentially, to 2009, the Labour Party is a non-entity. They hold between 19 to 15 seats. It's and now we go back to this latest election where BB yeah. is well, forced. Well, before we get to that, so in 2011, the Labour Party has become part of Bibi's government. Ehud Barak has been, in the most recent internal elections, elected as their leader again. Why they would do this? I don't know. I guess they decided that after a string of unsuccessful people, uh, they decided to elect somebody who has a history of being successful, even though he wasn't that successful and was kind of the architect of their demise. Again, their like third demise. Uh, basically, he goes into Bibi's government as the minister of defense. He comes in crawling with 15 uh, seats. Bibi... Uh, BB, in Bibi's government, in when Bibi's government in 2011 basically calls off any sort of peace negotiations with the Palestinians, uh, along with a few other things like economic measures, the thing with the Haredim, the Labour Party calls it quits. People in the Labour Party are going, no, 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 we can't stay in Violence this government. There war. is no way we're staying in this government. We are done with this. However, Barak, Ehud Barak, wants to stay in the government because he likes his nice cushy seat as the minister of defense. Uh, he's saying you can do more in the government than outside of the government, yada, yada, yada. He takes three other um, members of Knesset uh, from labor with him takes them from the labor from the labor party essentially, leaving them with, I believe it left him with 11 members at this time. 
Which or is was dreadful. It, well, yeah, it's it's close to nothing. Oh, and in order to sort of fill the void left by labor and all these arguments that are going on um, in 2013. So in 2011, labor elects a new uh, leader, obviously, because their old leader split from the party. It elects this young, well, not young, well, not particularly young, progressive firebrand, very much focused on economic issues uh, inequality called Shelly Yakimovich. She is known as the, 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 the most prodigious parliamentarian. She has worked on more laws than any other parliamentarian in the Knesset, uh, most of them relating to economics, helping out the, the lower income persons. You know, she, she's very much on the socialist end of the socialist uh, peacenik left. She has, she doesn't even emphasize uh, peace in her election strategy and stuff. Uh, The question here is, when did labor become the Zionist Union? Which obviously was... I will get get to that. Tell me when I can start talking about the parties. So labor goes and slinks off to opposition in and then Kadima, uh, I think this was in, yeah, 2012, Kadima, late 2012, uh, Kadima goes into a realignment. Tsipi Livni, which had been the party's leader, uh, loses the election as party's leader to Shaul Mofaz who is another former chief of staff, very right-wing, kind of politically inept person, uh, but very much a right-wing person, a former hardline Likudnik who is famous for saying that when Kadima split from Likud, he is famous for saying that you don't leave your home, staying in Likud for a few months, and then leaving Likud to go to Kadima. Seems like a politically stable person. Yeah. Shaul Mofaz goes in to Bibi's government, into Likud's government, turning it into the largest government in Israeli history, I believe, at the time, with something like 70-something seats, which is huge. Uh, Unlike right now, uh, when they have just, uh, where, where they just have 61, if that even. Yeah. They, they technically the, have 61, but we'll get to that point. Yeah, so, well, right now they have more than 61, but um, because of what just happened. But basically, Kadima goes into the government, achieves absolutely none of its aims going in, quits back out, uh, triggering new elections. It collapses the government in 2013, triggers new elections. Into this elections, uh, Labour Party basically picks up a few seats and becomes um uh becomes uh, uh, 17 seats strong it's still very much a tiny party uh this party called uh Yeshatid under the leadership of this very this centrist Yair Lapid takes over Yair Lapid takes uh well not takes over but receives 19 seats which is unheard of for a party running for the first time you know uh, like a fresh party formed out of nothing, 
This party includes former sportsmen, economists, uh, left-wingers, right-wingers. It's very much a center party. It becomes the kingmaker during 2013. It goes with Bibi, who has at this time won uh, joint forces with the Israel Beitenu, with the Russian party uh, that pulls in about 11 seats. Bibi pulls in a few more, uh, you know, uh, I think he pulled in, together they pulled in 32 seats, but they were running on a joint list. In 2015, Yair Lapid, having decided that he has not achieved what he needs from the government, mainly his, his main uh, political gripe was with the ultra-Orthodox. He wanted to lessen their power, uh, get their benefits out. And this is another thing. The ultra-Orthodox don't serve in the military. They are not forced to conscript like the rest of the people like in Israel. Like everyone else, right. Yeah. So that's a big part of his platform is get them to get con conscripted. He doesn't manage to do it. 2015, the government breaks apart. We have Be new elections. Because of this? This, among a few other things, Yair Lapid can't get things going. He qu he uh, has a fight with Bibi Netanyahu. Bibi Netanyahu, basically, it's a it's a you're fired, no, I quit type of thing. Bibi yeah, Netanyahu because because Bibi needs those Orthodox votes. Yeah, well, Bibi, yeah, he knows he'll need them in the future. At the moment, they are not in the government. Bibi Netanyahu fires Yair Lapid from his position as Minister of uh, the Treasury, um, Treasury, and Yair and new elections are called for 2015. This is the most recent round of elections. In the meantime, in the Labour Party, the uh, internal elections have put Shelly Akhimovich out of a job. Because the Labour Party has this thing where they don't like keeping around anyone for too long. Peres was the last person they kept for more than one losing term. And, well, you saw how that turned out. Yep. So now the Labour Party sort of has this tradition of if you lose, you're out of a job. You're no longer the head of the party. You can still be a member of Knesset. You're still probably getting elected in the list somewhere. But you're no longer going to be the head of the party when the internal elections come rolling around. Instead... Uh, there comes Herzog. Herzog is another sort of interesting figure. He is one of the Labour Party princes. He is the son of a former president, uh, a party activist, uh, like party big shot. Oh, and presidents uh, for most European countries and for Israel as well means essentially... President does the role which vice president or would do in the United States or the queen would do in the United Kingdom. He officially nominates someone to be the prime minister, but otherwise does all the representative functions. Just, yeah, just it's mostly this. it's mostly a symbolic gesture. He does some diplomatic work, but it's it's pretty much symbolic. Uh, by the way, um, Perez while never becoming prime minister, was from 2007 to 2014 president of Israel. So, you know, well, I should say Paris while never becoming prime minister on his own terms. Yeah, yeah. He was prime minister, but he wasn't elected prime minister. There you go. But he did become the president of Israel from 2007 to 2014 and was incredibly popular at the time. 
Herzog is one of the princes of the party. He was the number two guy in the Labour Party for many years, uh, repeatedly getting the most votes for internal elections and placing as number two in the list because of it, um, but never quite managing to become party leader. Now he's got his shot. He's party leader and he does what he does best, intra-party inter-party politicking. He goes to Tsipi Livni, which, if you may remember, had been ousted for the leadership of Kadima. Now, after Tsipi Livni is ousted from the leadership of Kadima, she goes ahead and, like you do, forms her own party. Her party is called the Tnua, literally the movement. Uh, the movement is led by her. It's actually got uh, some Labour Party uh, escapees, runaways, expats, whatever you want to call it, in its ranks. Among them are um, Peretz, uh, two former party leaders such as Peretz, Amram Mitzna. Amram Mitzna was the Labour Party leader after Ehud Barak. Um, he brought the party down to 19 seats. So he wasn't very well received. Um, Amir Peretz was the Labour Party leader in 2006. He kept the party at 19 seats, but lost, so he got out. Uh, there's a lot to both of these guys, but I don't want to go too crazy long with this, so I'll, I'll just leave it at that for days. <sighs> Basically, um, Tsipi Livni and Herzog make a deal. The deal they make is... Tnua's people will be posted in the Labour Party, in, in the list, this new list, which is going to come to be known as the Zionist Union. And they will be co-chairs of this list, uh, with Herzog taking lead if they lose, and Tsipi Livni and Herzog being co-leaders if they win. The deal they make is, if they win, they will be prime minister on alternating years on alternating times and just like is, Paris. And, and this is why bb made his uh, very very dangerous statements about the left on the elections if I'm yeah right. so this is seen as sort of the first big challenge to bb in a while um a lot of people were saying this was going to be the time that bb was going to be overturned there's a lot of enthusiasm in the streets and at the end, BB manages to bring out the fear in people, and he doesn't even bring With it out. With dreadful commercials, the even like dreadful. With threats, there was a commercial that ran that showed uh, uh, ISIS militants driving towards the Israeli border, and the ad basically said, "This is what will happen if you elect the Zionist Union." The ad was taken down a day after it aired, but obviously it oh, had man, already I, done. Even I saw it. It was on YouTube immediately. Yeah, yeah. It's a little crazy in terms of the amount of fear-mongering that BB goes to in this election. This is when he makes his famous trip to the U.S. Congress without being invited by President Obama, which is a major breach of protocol. He does this to talk to Congress in uh, the 15th of March, which uh, is just weeks before the Israeli election, to talk to them about the dangers of Iran and the Iran deal. By the way, it's... Iran is the country which we'll be looking at next time for the listeners 
who are still Ooh. with us after these three hours <laughs> of time and will be taking some more time to deal with the current politics. You know what? You really, really can't look at the politics of a whole state in any sensible way in less time than that. So in this election, Benjamin Netanyahu gets 23.4% of the vote, of the, all the elections, and gets 30 votes at the end. Zionist Union gets 24 seats, which is much better than the 19 before. Now, here comes the surprising part, if you remember that, because of how the threshold was increased to 3.25%, a joint list is formed, and they get 13 seats, which, like Ed has said, is two more than expected. The previously mentioned Yeshatid, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yep. Yeah, they get 11 seats, which is 8 less than before. And then there's also some other parties. Would you like Eres to comment on this? For example, the Kulanu. Okay, the so party, Kulanu... Which get 10 seats. So who are Nine they? seats. Nine seats. It's said that they get 10. Really? With 7.49%. They get, they get 10 seats, apparently. They get 10, and yeah, just, just a quick comment on who, who are the Kulanu. Oh, I guess they are. They did get 10. Um, the official count when it was over was 9, but I guess they picked up an extra seat with uh, soldiers' votes. Okay, so um, Kulanu is led by this guy named Moshe Kachron. Moshe Kachron is a former uh, member of Knesset from the Likud and the former Minister of Communication. He quit in uh, Bibi's... Tooth, uh, he, he quit... Bibi's government over supposed disagreements with him basically in 2013 and he sort of uh, he's sort of the the Mizrahi the eastern sort of Likud credit he he, he talks about uh, Begin as his father as his mentor well not his mentor but as a sort of like the guy he looks up to uh, about Likud as his home uh, back when he was a kid, but then he talks about how Likud no longer represents him, him being the Mizrahi, the lower classes and stuff. So his he's, main, the, he's the Mizrahi guy. Yeah, his main claim to fame was when he was the minister of uh, communications, that being things like um, phones, cell phones, television, stuff like that in Israel. He... Uh, underwent a revolution in the market, uh, which brought in a lot more competition and lowered cell phone prices for everybody. Um, and that's sort of his thing. He became the kingmaker this past election because of his 10 seats. Yeah, they, they, they joined up with BB in, in this one. Yeah, he, he joined up with BB pretty much because he had no other way. If he had gone with labor, it would have been a government of – it would have had to include the Arab joint list. And as you may recall from this long history lesson I've just given, no other government has ever included the Arab parties. And that, fact, mean, and that mean if Likud includes the Arab parties against which they used even ISIS – as a scaremongering tactic, they would definitely lose the next election. 100%. Well, Kulanu, if, well, it wasn't a danger that Likud would include uh, these guys. The danger was that Labour 
would include these guys. Um, and that would be sort of confirming everybody's biggest fears. You know, they're including the Arabs mm -hmm. uh, in, in their government. So um, Kulano is a very centrist guy. Uh, who he's he's center right. He's definitely center right. He's right wing on a lot of a lot of thing, a okay. lot of uh, security issues. Okay. Uh, that, next, but, we're moving down to the Jewish home. Yeah. Which are also so, the coalition. The Jewish home is a party led by this guy named Bennett. Yeah. Bennett made Naftali his Bennett. Uh, Naftali if, Bennett. If I can get his name right. Yes, Bennett made his name during the 2012 Gaza invasion. Okay, so actually going back before that, um, Bennett started out as Bibi's chief of staff. Well, I can, uh, I can see like a lot of these little parties just split up from whatever Bibi was leading. Yeah, so he was Bibi's chief of staff uh, back in the day. Uh, there's some rumors as to why he left. Some of them include uh, supposedly Bibi's wife really didn't like him, and that was the reason he was fired from his position. He is uh, what I would call what would be called a nationalist Orthodox. So uh, he is Orthodox Jewish, but he is a Zionist, and he is very much a nationalist. In 2012, he ran for his party's leadership and got his party's leadership um, more or less crushing the other competitors. Um, his, his party, which is now the Jewish Home, uh, it went by different names. It's, it used to be called the Mafdal. Um, it's sort of... Uh, the, it was it was known as the National Religious Party, the Mafdal. The Mafdal was not actually right wing the whole time. They sort of they went between right wing and left wing. A lot of them were peaceniks back in the day. It's complicated, but basically uh, they're concerned with a religious uh, help to the nationalist religious movement, which okay. is separate from the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic and Haredi movements, which are different parties. Which are um, about to follow here, such as yeah. Shas. What's Shas? Wait, wait. I'm not done with the Jewish home. Yet. Okay. Okay. So the Jewish home in 2012 sort of made its name with Bennett coming out as, I am the right wing. I am the rightest of the right wing. I am, uh, you know, as hawkish as they get. Um, he talked a lot on American TV during the Christ, during the 2012 uh, conflict in Gaza. Um, he was sort of the face of Israel in many ways in that. Um, and he managed to bring a lot of people to the party, quadrupling it in size from, uh, from three members in 20 in, in the Knesset before to 12 members in the following Knesset. That's huge. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, so he sort of became... Bibi had to suffer with him, basically. And then in the most recent elections, Bibi actually took seats from him, and that's how he got his 30 and the ability to form a government, was 
he went down to eight seats in 2015. Yeah. Then the then we have the previously mentioned Shas with seven yes. seats, who also lost four seats to BB, I presume, or someone else. But, yeah. yeah. Shas is Shas was formed in 1984 as the religious party of the of ultra orthodox Jews, the Haredi Jews. If you've ever been to Brooklyn and seen the guys with the black hats and the black suits and the curls coming out of coming off their head, the, the the funny little curls on the sides of their ears and their tzitzit, which is their like the white little piece of cloth coming out of their shirts. Those guys. That's their party in Israel. Shas is actually uniquely the Eastern, the Mizrahi Haredi's party. Shas is currently run by a guy named Arya Deri, which I promised we would get to because Arya Deri sat in prison. Oh boy, I also have like two pieces of news about Deri. Because when looking this whole thing up, what I found out is that there is no one involved in corruption like Shas is involved in corruption. Yes, Shas has had multiple members in prison. It's and a I joke that at this because... point it's almost a requirement to, to, in order to be considered as a member of Knesset for Shas to have served in prison. But because uh, actually, you know, the, there was an expose run not so far ago, which uh, stated that Shas jobs are all in the family and that they're all in Derry's family. For example, secretary to religious minister is Derry's in-law. Another secretary for him is Derry's niece. The son of one of his closest associates serves in the student internship in the ministry. Senior official in his educational network of Shas is Daddy's sister. All sorts of things like that. And when this expose ran, apparently, as far as I've learned, Shas actually ran away from Bibi's government and they had to be invited back in and apologize to. The amount of yeah. power these people hold is insane for their just seven spots in the Israeli government. But, you know, you you basically ra- you basically run through all of these corruption charges, and uh, one of the one of the Likud spokespersons, uh, David Biton, basically uh, had to end the, the no relation. Send- <laughs> yeah, B- Biton, you're Bitan. They're He's- very close. Uh, uh, yeah, they're very close. Uh, not not close for for a stupid Latvian like me, but hey, uh, still, he had to say that <clears throat> inappropriate remarks were made that did not need to be said about a guy who literally stuffed all of his family into important offices who paid a lot of money. Because yeah, he also served some, two years three served in, prison in prison for corruption. Oh wow! Yeah, and what 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 was the statement? Was that uh, a report by Hartes, which is apparently a newspaper in Israel, was claiming that... Which newspaper? Hartes. Haaretz. Haaretz. Haaretz, yeah. Sorry. Haaretz is the left-wing newspaper. Yeah, they, they reported this, uh, stating that uh, Raimi Sadan, Channel 10's new, new uh, chairman, uh, according to ha- Haaretz, Said right. that uh, these, this guy had slandered Mizrahi Jews. I actually, you have finally taught me who Mizrahi Jews are by now, and <laughs> that yes. uh, he hates this Derry guy. 
But it's insane. I mean, this person has been in prison for three years and he has just stopped his family with evidence of this to a bunch of important posts. Yes, expect expect after this podcast airs to get an injunction from his party that they're suing you because you said he was in prison or something. Oh, they, um, they can't do that. I'm in Latvia. This, this allows me to just, I don't know. Latvia doesn't yeah. have any libel laws, so I can slander whatever, man. It's the beauty of the show. When when I go back to Israel, they're going to interrogate me now. Um, <laughs> that, that, this means I can't go to Israel like ever. No, no, you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> people slander dairy all the time. Uh, but And he deserves it. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've, now, we've, 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 come, to the, we've come to the weird part. Wow. Uh, yeah, so Ari Dairy served in prison. Seven years after he was released from prison, came back to Shas, had this big leadership battle with uh, his counterpart, with, with the guy who basically covered for him in the party when he wasn't there. Uh, yeah. Eli Shai was the guy's name. And the battle plays out a little differently because unlike a lot of parties in Israel, Shas is not a uh, it's not a democratic party it doesn't elect its people through a democratic primary process the way shas elects its list is it has a rabbi uh, it used to be that that rabbi was ovadia yosef he was known as this huge you know genius for them he was the leader of their movement uh, he passed away in uh, 2013, uh, just a little bit before this leadership battle happens. So now you've got this leadership battle between these two guys, and they don't essentially have anybody to decide. Can't so what did the they? Rabbi? Well, this guy was a genius to them. This is sort of the whole crux of the Hasidic movement: is it is formed around individual rabbis who are known as these like genius. Uh, uh, they're almost holy men. To them. I, I don't want to get into an, a theological fight here, but basically now the brunt of this for falls on a council of elders, uh, a council of rabbis, which basically decide they're known as the council of wise wise men. Uh, if you want to be funny, the council of wise guys. Um, they're essentially now a lot of them because. Devi was out of commission for so long, you know, being in prison and then later having to sit out seven years because he was in prison. Um, Eli Shai got to put a lot of his people on this council. So it was a tough battle. Uh, basically, Eli Shai lost in the end. Um, Devi won. Uh, Eli Shai quit the party, tried to form his own with this other crazy right wing dude. He didn't get past the threshold. And yeah, so that's Ariadere and that's Shas. Then there is uh, UTJ or United Torah Judaism. Yeah, with, with who also ha who have six votes in, in the Knesset. Yes, they have six votes. They are also an ultra orthodox party. They represent uh, the Ashkenazi, uh, or otherwise known as Litvak, Lithuanian tradition of uh, ultra-Orthodox. The word comes from Litva, which is the Russian name from Lithuania. 
Yes. I am, for example, uh, I have Litvak roots. I have uh, uh, my great grandmother is from Lithuania. Well, I think it's now part of Ukraine. I don't know. You guys all reorganized that part of the world. I'm not sure where her, where, where the place she's from is now. Uh, I know she was technically born in Vilnius, though. So, you know. Um, which is still part of Lithuania, right? Vilnius is the capital of Lithuania. Yes, I know. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> anyways... Uh, yeah, so United Torah Judaism, that's their shtick. Something that's interesting about them is they don't like taking credit for things, failures or successes of the government. They are not allowed to be ministers. They only ever take the post of deputy minister. Because of their faith? No, it's because they literally don't want to take the blame for anything that happens. But they're these really, really, really Orthodox Jews, right? Yep. So, but, but it's but it's why? just sort of their thing. It's part of it's it's interesting. Um, they have had a guy who's been deputy health minister for like three times now, and he Whoa. never they never sought the post of health minister for them. Whoa. Um Then again, what's what's their difference from the um, other part of the Ashkenazi Jews that? Israel Beteno. Israel Beteno are not Beitenu. a religious party. Oh. And they actually and just the... joined the government. Yeah, I know. In, the, right. in May 2016, that's why Bibi has more than 61 seats. Now he has 67. Congratulations, yeah. Bibi. So, in order to talk about Israel Beteno, we have to talk about Avigdor Lieberman, otherwise known as Yvette Levovich Lieberman. Did I say that right? Oh, God. he He's from Russia, right? He's from Moldova. Okay. <laughs> We're in the fun zone, guys. Moldova is the country which is exactly on the border between Romania and Ukraine. It's the tiny strip of land which was occupied by the Soviets and cut off from... Romania and a lot of people in Romania still think it should be a part of Romania and it's crazy because now Russia sort of wants it back. Moldova is one of the weirdest places on the planet Earth, ladies and gentlemen. So he's from there. So why is he named Avigdor again? That's his Hebrew-sized name. He he took that name when he came to Israel. He was actually um, born in Kishinev. Yeah, the capital of Moldova. Yeah. Um, he is very much, uh, the representative of the Israeli former Soviet Union community. We call them the Russian community because we're kind of racist like that. Um, do you, do you want to ring the death bell, the death threat bell? No, 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 um, no this time. Yeah. His, but it's we're pretty damn high on the list, I would say. Yeah, well, you're talking about Israel. You should have expected this. I do, man. It's cool. Lieberman, if you ever hear him speak in any language, he has a thick Russian accent. Uh, he immigrated to Israel in 78, so he was already uh, 20 years old when he immigrated uh, and changed his name to Avigdo. Um, he actually is 
interesting as a minister of defense. That's the job he has in the current Israeli government. And I'll talk in a second about how he got that job. But it's interesting that he's military minister of defense, considering that his military service, he only ever made it to the rank of corporal, which is less than most people than pretty much anybody does. Because if you serve your full three years, you make it to first sergeant unless you did something terrible or got kicked out or something. But he never served a full three years. He served, I think, like eight months as a uh, com- uh, commissary uh, uh, soldier. Basically, the guy who worked the place where soldiers bought their candy. That was his job in the military. And he is now the mil- minister of defense. You guys are in safe hands. Yeah, Uh, he's sort of known as very much a right wing person because most of Israel's Russian community is very right wing. Um, But he is also very much anti uh, Hasidic, anti Haredi, because the Russian Israeli community doesn't get a lot of respect from them. And by doesn't get a lot of respect, I mean. They are not, in many cases, what one would call religiously correct Jews. Judaism, as you know, my friend Kristaps, um, religiously it runs through the mother. If your mother is Jewish, you are Jewish. If your mother's mother was Jewish, you are Jewish, etc., etc. That, et that, that would make me Jewish, but I wasn't raised that way at all. So I, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't consider myself Jewish, but uh, this here nice man does, so uh, I don't know. That should lessen yeah. that, that should lessen the death threat count just a slightly little bit, but I don't know because my grand, so, grandmother from mother's side was Jewish, so um, that makes mom Jewish. That makes me Jewish in a way, which is strange for me, but yeah, you know. So basically, he a lot of former Soviet Union Israelis are not Jewish according to that law. Only their father was Jewish, or their grandfather. Um, and they got in on Israel's law of return, which basically says, if you were Jewish enough for the Nazis, you're Jewish enough for us. That's three generations back on either side. You have Jewish ancestry. Welcome. Um, now, because of this, uh, the Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox parties have kept them from getting married in Israel. They can't legally get married under Jewish law in Israel, which means they have to go uh, outside the country to get Wait, married they, in many can cases. Can they get in secular places? I mean, in Latvia, you have this church marriage. In the we don't marriage. have secular marriage in Israel. That's a surprise. Yeah. For a liberal modern democracy, the interesting thing, well, one of the many interesting things that uh, has been produced by this ultra-Orthodox power over our various governments is that we don't have civil marriage. Um, you can get married as a Muslim, you can get married as a Christian, you can get married as a Jew, you can get married as a Hindu, as a Buddhist, as a whatever you want to. You cannot get married secularly. And each one has to be done according to its law. Of course, we don't care how the Muslims get married or the Christians or the – they all do their own thing. If you want to get married under Protestant law but the Catholics don't want you to, we really don't care. In Israel and among the Jews, it's different 
because the ultra-Orthodox parties control things, legally speaking, you need essentially a stamp from the Rabbanut, which is the uh, the rabbinate court, which is the, the highest sort of Jewish court uh, and authority in Israel. You need them essentially to approve your marriage in order to get married in Israel. Now, Israel does recognize civil and secular marriages from outside of Israel. So what will happen, and there is a whole industry that has sprung up around this, is people will go to, say, Cyprus to get married in a secular civil marriage and then just come back to Israel. So that's just one of the reasons uh, that Russian Jews and particularly Lieberman do not get along with the ultra-Orthodox and why labeling them as an Orthodox party is incredibly incorrect. They are a secular party. Okay. And then we have the last guys on the list on the Knesset, the Meretz. Meretz. Meretz aren't in the government. So yeah, but they're on the Knesset. They're on the Knesset. They have five. They seats are there. in the Knesset. Meretz is a fun little left-wing hip place. Uh, no, uh, Meretz is basically. I actually personally know a few of uh, the people who have been a part of and have founded Meretz. In fact, I have the pleasure of having personally talked to uh, Ran Cohen, who was one of the founders of the party um, back in the 1980s, although he started his political journey in the 60s, 70s. Yeah, it's complicated. But basically, his description of Meretz, which I find to be the most accurate, is as left-wing as you can go while still being a Zionist party. They are not an Arab party. They like to welcome Arabs in, but they are not an Arab party. They are a Zionist party. They are very left-wing. Their main focus is security, uh, or rather, I should say, diplomacy with the Palestinians. They support a two-state solution. Uh, they almost always will give tentative support to what they, they have, a what you could call a two-day policy. Any Israeli conflict, like the most recent one in Gaza, they will support it for the first two days. But, but why two days? No, it's just their thing. They will. They if it's not over by two days, uh, I guess. Well, I shouldn't say it's not like a universal thing. Like if they have a conflict that they believe is necessary and right to go forward, they will support it throughout. But it's just been sort of this trend that they supported the first like two days of the all the recent uh, Gaza conflicts, if I remember correctly. It's a little weird. Um, they are to the left of labor, basically but to the right of the Arab parties. And that is where they fall on the spectrum. Uh, their leader is a person named Zahava Galon, which I am a little ashamed to know to say I don't know a ton about. She has sort of turned the party into a caricature in many people's eyes because her tagline is Zebiglala Kibush. It's because of the occupation. And which is what the Tel Aviv mayor just said, by the way. Well, yes, but he said that about Palestinian terror. Yeah, because uh, 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 today, in the June 9th, the Tel Aviv mayor, Ron Huldai... Uh, Ron Huldai. Oh, the, the accent is in the last part, sorry. He it's basically okay. stated that there is no way to hold people in a situation of occupation and think that they will reach the conclusion that everything is okay and that they will continue to live like that. 
And he said, on the one hand, the occupation lasted 49 years, and I took part in it. Uh, uh, very critical about the occupation, and very critical in yes. the light of the recent terror attacks. Uh, terror attacks. Uh, could you please explain these connections between that party and the mayor of Tel Aviv? He has none. The mayor of Tel Aviv is a Labour Party. Okay. Um, Meretz actually ran somebody against him back in, I think it was 2013. They ran their uh, gay member of Knesset against him, and he got something like 25% of the vote. Um, he was hopeless. Um, but Kron Khuldai is an interesting character all on his own. Uh, he sort of gets the credit to be able to say stuff like that because he was an Air Force pilot for many years. Uh, he was a squadron commander. Uh, he sort of has the military cred to back up his statements on security and that stuff. Zahava Galon does it. Uh, and she gets a lot of flack for saying stuff like it's because the occupation. And it's become a, a, a sort of a meme because she'll say that about a lot of stuff. Like I believe there was an issue where they were talking about economics and she was saying it's because of the occupation. That quite complicates things. Yeah. So that's sort of your rundown of the parties and of Israel politics. No, no, no but wait. There's a slightly a bit more. Just two things, actually. One thing that I came up with that I want your comment is how on 12-14 Sweden officially recognized the state of Palestine which ended up being a crazy, crazy uh, media coverage all, all, all over the world, especially since the Palestine currently is run by a sort of a wing of Hamas, democratic, democratically elected okay. things. And the second part is, what I want your opinion, is on our good friend Bibi, because I have saved up to the very last point two quotes of him. Number one from Bibi is that... <clears throat> It doesn't matter if the justice is on your side. You have to depict your position as just. That means he doesn't care about justice. And the second one, and the final quote on this show, I promise, well, on this episode, that is, is, <clears throat> which he said in 2008, Benjamin Netanyahu, ladies and gentlemen, we are benefiting from one thing, and that is the attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and the American struggle in Iraq. These events swung American public opinion in our favor. That is the current leader of uh, Israeli government speaking. He's very radical, at least I think so. What do you think about these two issues? Are they connected? And how do you see these solutions to this? One state, two state <laughs> things happening. It's a really complex situation, but if you could wrap down in a half an hour or less, that would be appreciated. Okay, so I'm going to give my quick uh, rundown. Basically, I'm going to talk about BB first because I think he's connected to the reason Sweden it did what it did. BB's entire political career has basically been him becoming more and more of a polarizing and extreme figure. Uh, this is interesting because he's uh, – especially on the international scene. This is interesting because he started out his career as the American boy – who spoke for Israel diplomatically. You know, he was in the UN. Uh, he was our ambassador to the UN for a while, did very well in that. Uh, he was the deputy foreign minister. He is very much, uh, you know, 
came from making good speeches in English. That was his thing. Um, and he really sort of followed that to become the right-wing demagogue of Likud in many ways. Now, I think this comes both from his attempts and failures to rally any sort of peace camp around him. Um, I think part of it is he has formed, uh, he's very much um, sees himself in almost a messianic light. He sees himself as uh, the savior of Israel, and he thinks that anybody who's against him clearly wants the downfall of Israel. And that means that he will butt heads with a lot of people. Uh, this is probably what led him to butt heads with Obama as much as he did, to the point where he more or less supported Romney in 2012, which is unheard of for an Israeli prime minister to do, to support the rival of the, the current incumbent president. Um, he has butted heads with pretty much the entire international community because – and the more he – receives criticism for that, the more he sees himself as being under siege. Uh, you know, they're wrong, I'm right, they're attacking Israel, they're attacking me, they're attacking Israel, they're all anti-Semites, you know, uh, there's a second Holocaust coming. That's that's like ringing constantly in the back of, of this whole sort of thing is to him, these people never loved us, they never liked us, they're only... Any sort of love they've shown us is a facade and anything beyond – and so any attack is them showing their true colors as anti-Semites, anti-Zionists, etc., etc. Now, when you attack the whole world, you can't expect it to sit back and take it. Now, I'm not excusing Sweden. The, the, the Swedes have done their fair share of stupid crap in the past few years. Um, I'm sure you could get into some of that too. Oh, we'll get to that in the Swedish episode, yes. Uh, but I think their swing to the left, combined with BB's aggressiveness, is sort of is is what led to their statement. Because I, I kind of think that, and this will come up uh, in play in the future episodes, that a large part of that is that their electorate is essentially Muslim by now. A lot of their population is Muslim because of their refugees. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it plays a part. But I don't think Sweden would have had the cover that it did to do as it has done were it not for BB alienating much of the international community. I mean, when you look at some of the crazy, downright crazy things the Swedish foreign minister have, has said – and yet he still remains their foreign minister and, you know, is accepted in capitals around Europe. I mean, the, the, wasn't it the Swedish foreign minister who said that uh, the, the attacks in France were because of Israel? Yeah, yeah, because of Israeli occupation. Because of the occupation. Yeah, that's a little, you know. As for my position on the two states, uh, I've sort of tried to keep this a little non-biased, but uh, here we go. Get that death threat bell ringing. Ding. Um, <laughs> I, am, uh, I am what you would call a left-wing labor person. 
I'd probably fit in neatly in merits too, but I'm more labor than merits on other things, economic issues. If I were prime minister tomorrow, uh, I'd probably go to the table, hammer out some sort of agreement with the Palestinians that would involve, involve uh, an apology, uh, a scaled back military, pull, a scaled military pullout uh, that would also have uh, international troops, hopefully, covering, um, you know, on our way out there, um, some sort of, you know, but yeah, basically, I believe in this two-state solution. I think it's crucial to establish a two-state solution, both from the perspective of Israel is not going to survive as a Jewish state for long because we are going to lose the majority, and we can't keep millions of people under occupation. Like, that's – it's impossible to manage the conflict in the long run, which is what Bibi has been doing. My other sort of position, though, is we must maintain the security of Israel. And I think the best way to do that is to pull out and and create a sort of a separation between our nations. Yeah, that's that's my position on this. I expect to see your death threats. <laughs> you know, please oh. send them to leftymcleftyface at gmail.com. <laughs> I will certainly post them. Thank you. It had been a lot of education these hours, and thank you for that, Erez. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you'll listen to us in the future. Next time we're tackling Iran with an Iran native on. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Rate us whenever, wherever you get us. Stitcher, iTunes, wherever. Do our listener survey. Donate to us through PayPal and Patreon and be supportive of the show. And don't forget to visit darkmyths.org for many more weird, controversial, and dark podcasts like this one. And I especially recommend my other show, The Eastern Border, about the life in and the history of the Soviet Union. This has been a nice time for me and a nice conversation with Erez. Goodbye, Erez. Goodbye. And see you next time on the People's Democratic Republic of Podcast. Goodbye. Be <laughs> 
jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. 